Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. Trustee Hernandez. He's here. He's here. Trustee Bale. Here. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Chiquin. Here. Trustee DeVries. Present. Trustee Jensen. Here. We do have a quorum. Thank you. So good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Board of Trustees special meeting. Even though we were supposed to be on recess uh, this month and this was a special meeting, we still managed to get a pretty packed agenda. <laughs> so um, my, my comments tonight will be around physician leadership, um, partly because it's just one of my favorite topics. Um, but also, uh, cause it's timely for a couple of reasons. Um, I think just in our country and in our world, I hope that maybe for people who didn't recognize before how important physician leadership is, I hope they do now, um, just for all of the health and safety of, of all of us. Um, but also because this is a timely topic for, for AHS with all of the changes that we are undergoing, uh, with the sort of historic milestone of forming um, EBMG uh, and all the effort that that took and, and the path that I think we have ahead of us. Um, I think that um, at, our, at our last meeting, Dr. Ballard raised some specific issues um, that raised concerns around uh, our policies and procedures. Um, and uh, I think we all took that very seriously as trustees um, and so even though it's not our role to necessarily resolve any disagreements or things like that between administration and physicians, I think we, we obviously take uh, physician and, and, and patient uh, safety very seriously. And so for that reason, um, I've directed staff to, um, to address those concerns um, that were raised sort of in a, um, in a broad and general way. Um, so Dr. Victorino is on the agenda um, for this evening. So I'm hoping that his report will at least um, clarify, I think, the scope of issues that need to be addressed and whatever measures are in place or will be put in place to address the concerns that, that were raised by Dr. Ballard. Um, after that meeting, I think other concerns were brought to my attention and to the attention of the board um, through email and other uh, types of communication. Um, that I think reflected questions about alignment between administration and the medical staff. And I wanted to acknowledge that here. Um, I've also received communications from other medical staff reflecting enthusiasm about the path we're on and hope um, and optimism around um, how we're moving forward towards greater alignment of medical staff and administration. Um, so, like I said, I think that the formation of EBMG is historic, is a historic milestone in AHS history. It took a lot of effort on the part of a lot of people uh, to get us here, um, but it's a process that's not over, and I think there will be more bumps in the road ahead. Um, and I think that the board's expectation is always that administration and medical staff will work closely and collaboratively on matters um, concerning operations, safety, quality, um, and, and that we recognize that the responsibilities are overlapping and joint in a lot of ways. And so the best way to approach those is collaboratively. And I think that that is the spirit of, of EBMG and what we'd like to see um, as we go forward. There is no, there's no us and them. Um, so I personally am very enthusiastic about the future of physician leadership in AHS on behalf of um, 
the safety net on behalf of the people of Alameda County. Um, and I, at a prior meeting um, and also in writing, I suggested that um, that I'd be making recommendations uh, around the EBMG bylaws, um, specifically with the desire to see the EBMG board be more reflective of the community that we serve or be reflective of the community that we serve. Um, and so I've met with Dr. Jamaluddin um, and Dr. Ang, and I've made some some recommendations in, in that regard. And I wanted to um, just express those now. I think at the time I didn't have any specifics in mind, just sort of a general uh, desire to uh, to make sure that this that our board of trustees, who does have some oversight role of EBMG, also takes the opportunity to um, express some of our expectations around how. Um, about how the, the board will be reflective of the community. And so the recommendations that I've made are that first is that the, the preamble um, in the bylaws would include the Alameda Health System Health Equity Pledge, um, which I believe is still under development. Um, and, and maybe uh, our CEO could speak to that. Um, in his remarks, um, also made some specific recommendations around the board seats. Um, so one is that one of the community board seats would be nominated by an affinity-based uh, physician membership society like Sinclair Miller Medical Association, um, a medical society that's dedicated to supporting physicians from underrepresented, com underrepresented communities that we serve. That was the first recommendation. Another is that we extend an, uh, an additional seat, an ex officio but voting seat um, to the board um, that would be designated to a senior physician leader in Alameda County Healthcare Services Agency. So like the chief medical officer or the um, public health officer. And that is really in the spirit of partnership um, with our county um, and understanding again that physician leadership is so critical um, to our entire county and we really would like to be aligned in that way. Um, and then that left us with an even number of seats and then so to make another, uh, to add another seat so that we could be an odd number, um, I recommended that an additional seat uh, go to uh, the board of trustees to appoint. Um, so that summarizes the recommendations that I made. It will, of course, be up to the leadership uh, to, to make those determinations and bring those back um, to this board. But I just wanted to share those here. Um, and that will conclude my remarks for this evening. So I'll pass it over to the CEO for his remarks. Uh, Trustee Avalada, uh, apologies. There was one public comment. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Youssef, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Sorry about that. Dr. Yusuf, go right ahead. Okay. So, dear members of the Board of Trustees, this is to support and complement our current HS administration and leaders. Since I have joined HS, I have witnessed outstanding performance. Here are a few of their notable achievements. First, Implementation of our EHR, EBIC, which was the biggest investment in our infrastructure in the history of HS. It also was done with a record low cost and in the shortest time, according to many consultants from EBIC. Second, unifying all surface lines across the system for a more cohesive structure to our organization it is very conducive to efficient lines of communication when we have just one department of emergency medicine, one department of pathology, and one department of radiology, etc. Third, 
unifying our physician groups into one organization, East Bay Medical Group, as a subsidiary of HS, which will make us a stronger force for the betterment of our patients. Fourth, the timely and comprehensive response of HS to COVID-19 pandemic is second to no one. They sprang into action from the very beginning and protected this community and its employees way better than any organization I am aware of. At a time of national shortages and complaints of medical staff across the country about lack of adequate protection, HS employees have been able to provide all their efforts efficiently towards our COVID-19 response as their own safety was always assured. The magnitude of this cannot be overstated. All these measures strengthened this safety network and allowed efficient, excellent care and reduced health care disparity in this community. Last but not the least, they have always maintained equality, equity, fairness, and equal opportunities to all. To all. None of this would be possible without the heroes at the top of this organization. Mr. Finley, Dr. Jamal Dean, Dr. Tornabini, and Mr. Fonseca. We thank you for all that you have done. Thank you very much. Thank you for that. Is it? Is it to me now? Oh, thank you. Yes. Okay. Uh, wow. Uh, thank you, Dr. Youssef. I appreciate that um, uh, very much. Uh, and I, on behalf of not just myself, but the, uh, the team as well. And um, uh, Dr. Abelada and, and trustees, good evening. Uh, I want to thank you for your remarks as well. I feel compelled to uh, uh, just sort of share or remind some of the trustees who, who might remember um, you know, the vast majority of my career, I, I, I call myself raised by uh, or under, I think, uh, I had the fortune of being raised under uh, physician leadership uh, in uh, Los Angeles most recently uh, before I came here in, in San Francisco, uh, both during my time um, at CPMC in Sutter, but the bulk of it at San Francisco General uh, with Dr. Mitch Katz in both of those cases and uh, really appreciate and uh, um, um, was influenced by the 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 sort of the mindset of uh, the importance of physician leadership across uh, the healthcare delivery uh, system and the combination, which I think he so well embodied, and we have tried to reflect on uh, throughout this organization and, and, and in particular the leadership team, uh, physicians who um, have. Uh, um, also had some degree of continued practice within the organization and bringing that level of uh, mindfulness, perspective, and uh, insight into the executive uh, uh, decisions that we make. Uh, and I call it a privilege, honestly. Obviously, I don't have the fortune of um, um, being a physician myself, but I always have appreciated and, and part of the reason why we have um, drastically expanded uh, uh, the number of physicians who are a part of the executive leadership team is to uh, recognize uh, that that importance and the importance of that role. And, and my belief, honestly, that physicians, uh, as I feel for a lot of clinicians, but certainly for physicians, uh, irrespective of whether they have leadership titles or not, are leaders 
leaders uh, by virtue of the role that they play in uh, healthcare delivery and influencing care, um, uh, uh, the care continuum. So I, your, your comments resonate with me uh, definitely within our context. But as you said earlier, um, uh, some of the things that are going on across our country now and our world with respect to this uh, pandemic, uh, I think, uh, underscore again the, the, the vital role that um, uh, physicians play in leadership in healthcare. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, you know, I was just going to share a few remarks, and I want to be mindful of, of time as well. Um, I wanted to start uh, kind of in that spirit with a patient story, Dr. Jamaluddin, um, uh, caring for a patient uh, virtually. And um, um, the patient um, uh, was, he was in the midst of his care. The patient was sharing some really uh, wonderful um, and wonderful, not not necessarily good, although it was mixed, actually, good but constructive insights to the organization. And he um kindly asked the patient if uh, he might include me because he felt like it was some important, uh, um, he was, he was passing along basically some good pearls that he thought I, I, I would best get from him directly. And the, the patient was gracious enough to allow me to join the, um, uh, that part of his uh, uh, session. And um, this gentleman, without uh, divulging too much, he's suffering from a chronic condition and has received care in a couple of uh, delivery systems in the Bay Area, including AHS and a couple of contexts. And uh, uh, while he, uh, like I said, there were some good parts of his care that he shared, uh, there were some parts that were somewhat troubling. And the, uh, on the constructive side, um, he uh, uh, continued to enjoy, uh, you know, a great uh, level of regard and uh, investment and commitment and, and, and wanted to actually um, uh, invited me to talk to him more about how he can share his perspective, uh, both for himself and the work the perspective he gets from the work that he does. Uh, but uh, one of the biggest takeaways he shared with us was that um, from his own perspective, uh, that he uh, felt that some of the care that he got in the organization varied uh, based off of the ethnicity of the provider that he saw. Uh, and in some uh, cases, when the uh, ethnicity of the provider matched his, he felt more of a collaborative partnership and a uh, uh, encouragement and investment in his care. And in other cases, uh, he felt more uh, less included as a partner and a more paternalistic experience. And that's an end of one, I want to be uh, 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 clear to say, uh, but but a, an end of one, no less. And I feel like that was an important uh, thing for me to hear and uh, really uh, um uh, appreciative for him for sharing that with me and uh, me being able to hear that, particularly as we uh, continue our heady efforts and uh, thinking about how our patients experience our care in our organization and how we might uh, be uh, uh, better always and how we can support them and provide for a better care experience and uh, uh, better health outcomes and equitable health outcomes as well. So I uh, just wanted to share that and really um, share the gift of that experience and that story um, with with the rest of you, uh, briefly, I'll talk. You know, uh, we continue to, and I, I feel like Dr. Yusuf just sort of mentioned some of this, but our, our pandemic response obviously it continues, on, on, unfortunately, uh, but uh, we're doing okay overall. Our numbers have started to um, stabilize again, but they are still on the higher side, not at our peak. About two weeks ago, we were. Uh, actually, a little over a week ago, uh, we were at our highest uh, uh, that we've been since the pandemic began, where we were close to about uh, 50 uh, patients in-house. Now 
somewhere down to the mid-30s. I think today we're at about 36 in-house, uh, still higher than where we used to be, about double where we were when uh, we were experiencing the flattening of the curve after the shelter-in-place order. So uh, uh, not celebrating, uh, but at least appreciative that we're not moving in the, um, the opposite direction and hopeful that that will continue. And the trends around the Bay Area seem to suggest the same. But we're not dropping our guard. Our uh, oversight committee still meets uh, three times a week. We are supporting restoration activities and the expansion of those uh, activities, meeting with teams and checking in how, how things are going, how we continue to partner to support them. We're uh, issuing communications out to the organization with key pertinent facts around our supply chain, around staffing, around uh, trends in the organization's advice and guidance as those evolve, um, uh, both in a broader world, but also in our practices and a host of other things. Uh, we continue to have our weekly town halls now. I think we're up to almost close to 20 of them maybe uh, um, um, at this point. Uh, maybe, maybe I, I can't remember the exact number, but they've consist- consistently happened each week and we're still having participation in the three to 400 uh, numbers each week. And so it uh, seems to be well-received and still continues to be a good way for us to uh, provide timely updates to the uh, organization. In particular, we'll talk about one that was a focused one around uh, health equity and have one of our wonderful physician leaders who helped to make that happen, who will share some details about it uh, during our update later. Um, externally, I don't need to tell you, but uh, as if the pandemic was enough, we were suffering from heat waves and then wildfires and now in some parts of our country, uh, um, hurricanes, and it's just, it's 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 overwhelming. Uh, um, and on top of that, then our most recent incidents happening in Wisconsin with the horrific uh, shooting of uh, Jacob Blake and uh, all these subsequent uh, uh, incidents of of violence, including the murders of of at least one, I think two individuals uh, connected with those activities. And it's just really uh, a lot emotionally, a lot physically. And so we keep our um, our, our, we're trying to keep our spirits up. We're trying to keep people uh, motivated, encouraged. Uh, we're providing uh, as many resources and resources uh, um, um, support as we can to individuals, including actually still trying to develop more for people who might be immediately and uh, uh, um, uh, closely impacted by wildfires and other things uh, for the organization or within the organization. Um, moving on, on the legislative side, uh, the state uh, is uh, about to wrap up the period where uh, laws or um, um, you know, laws have to be uh, through the um, through the le- regulatory process or the legislative process and off to the governor. Uh, one of particular importance, and we talked about, I think, last month, uh, thanking Trustee DeVries for uh, uh, leading the board's advocacy efforts for a particular bill we've been following closely, which is SB 758, which is a seismic uh, uh, law. Um, and uh, as you know, that um, law was uh, or that uh, bill was deci- uh, designed to uh, change the seismic uh, 2030 seismic mandate and push it back to 2037 and to create an advisory committee that would continue to look into uh, whether there should be other options for ensuring hospital preparedness. Uh, well, that went to the Appropriations Committee on Monday and they are uh, that uh, 20 that that seven-year extension was dropped down to uh, a mere two-year extension, and they eliminated the advisory committee. Uh, so not not a positive development for those who were uh, championing um, buying a bit more time and those who needed that time to continue to figure out how to come into compliance, and that includes us. Uh, so... Um, 
uh, not uh, to your extension when you're talking about construction, whether it's uh, retrofit or replacement, doesn't offer a lot more um, a significant amount of time for us. So I um, know that you know the um, the uh, joint committee between this board and the uh, the health uh, health care district board uh, will be passing this information along and then uh, hoping that that informs or helps to continue to inform some of the efforts and guidance that we can provide back to both groups in order to help to determine how best to proceed as an organization. Uh, it's still not final yet, uh, so we'll see what happens with it. Uh, there's some speculation that um, if uh, some of the folks who are advocating for a longer period of time can't get it, they may actually pull the bill rather than getting approved to see if they can uh, live to fight another day and try it again next year of sorts is what is what we're hearing. From the quality side, I want to say uh, two and things uh, we are really pushing forward. Oh, sorry. Chelsea, sorry Bill, can I ask you a question about that? Yes, sir. Um, can you tell us uh, how our, our local assembly member want to vote on the bill? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I the only time I saw it uh, I don't. I don't know if he's on the appropriations committee, uh, Terry, or anyone on the PACE team uh, or Tangerine may know. Uh, when it came out of the committee that he was in, uh, I didn't note that he. I think he abstained. Actually, it came out of that passed out of the committee, but I believe he abstained. If that's Tangerine, do you know? Sure. I, I, he is not on the appropriations committee, as I recall. I, I don't recall his vote, but I can certainly look that up and, and send that to you in a text right now. Thank you. Thank you. But uh, yeah, my recollection is out of his committee, he abstained. He abstained out of the health committee. All right. Well, yeah, I'm not a happy camper right now. Can we follow up with his office to see if we can get him to carry this a little bit more? We can certainly uh, um, do that. I mean, he, he started his career on the Alameda County, I mean, on the, uh, the Alameda Health District Board. That is, that's my recollection we as well. More explicit about, yeah, we couldn't have been more explicit about our need for his help and leadership sure. on this bill. I was very disappointed to see him obtain, and I hope that it was strategic, but then to hear the Appropriations Committee chopped it down to two years, took away the Advisory Committee, basically gutting the bill, um, it feels like the work was for naught, and I'm really not happy about it. And I think the people of Alameda need to be worried about it. If we want to preserve emergency services on the island in 10 years, um, we need everybody on board. We need every possible extension, break, support that we can get. And we need to be vocal about it. Well, the California Hospital Association is uh, one of, I think, the main champions for this. Uh, Bill and and my understanding is they would be I don't know if they were a key a key sponsor but my understanding is they would be part of it that would, uh, would move to um, to pull this if they can't successfully uh, uh, get it uh, changed uh, uh, to a more to a more. I mean, I want to point out it passed it, it passed the Senate unanimously. Senator Skinner, you know, carried it and it passed unanimously. I'm, I'm really shocked. Do we have any sense of what the issue is? Uh, my understanding is there are a couple of uh, unions, and I, I please don't quote me on this, but what I recall is that there are uh, some uh, nursing unions, I think CNA and the uh, trades uh, that are, um, are not supportive of a delay or an extension uh, that they they. That was the first thing Assemblymember Bonta said to me when we met, was that the unions uh, were opposed to it, and that was a problem. 
Well, I mean, I think it's going to educate our decision at some point about what we do with Alameda Hospital if the local elected official can't even support its future. That's, 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 that's correct. It's really shocking. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I, I said See, I was going to say I took the time out of my day, my work day, for my regular job to have this meeting, to implore him to help us suggested a friendly amendment that I think California Public Hospital Association supported that could put us on a track to the advisory committee considering a funding package to help safety net hospitals with the funding in 2030. Um, he seemed to like that idea and then abstained and nothing happened. I'm, I'm really disappointed and I hope we can. Duly noted. Uh, well, and thank you. Uh, I, I, um, I take your, your guidance and uh, I know Terry and Tangerine are uh, following as well. We will follow up and uh, uh, for you and other trustees, keep you as apprised as, uh, uh, as possible on you know, our outreach efforts and invite you to join us if that's something you'd like to uh, do or continue to do. Um, so in the interest of time, I'll, 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 I'll wrap up my remarks. I'll just say, um, really, um, uh, want to tell you that we are um, uh, at, uh, progressing with our participation in the LeapFrog study or uh, survey, uh, and uh, uh, the quality team is uh, uh, shepherding that effort for us and uh, hope to have some updates soon on that. Uh, the deadline, I think, for submission is coming up, and uh, the group is really uh, working with operational leaders to make sure that we uh, provide uh, robust and accurate data across our acute sites. So um, we are still standing in readiness for the Joint Commission survey uh, uh, because of the pandemic and the continued numbers of uh, positive and uh, um, you know cases that we have in-house, uh, uh, we have not. Uh, they they have not followed up with us with a, a return date or an indication that they're doing surveys again in our in our area. Uh, obviously, next month we'll be bringing forward to you um, uh, updates. Um, actually, I should say, yeah updates uh, through the finance committee and otherwise uh, and the full board on where we are on our external and internal efforts to complete the budget. Our goal uh, continues to be to finish up by the end of next month to take it through the approval process in the month of October. So uh, we are hopeful that we can continue to close our gap. The gap does still exist. Um, uh, we have made some successes, but um, we've also had a couple of uh, uh, setbacks in the sense that one is that we uh, have gotten uh, from the state the FY09 closure, which is a part of those years of uh, closings that we uh, said when they all come due our total um, roughly $100 million in prior year waivers. Uh, the first one is uh, comparatively small as a percentage of all of that. The net is about $7 million or so. Uh, we don't have yet a, we think, a uh, robust and uh, aligned uh, and agreed upon solution with the county of how we will cover those uh, prior year uh, liabilities. Um, so we'll be saying more about that uh, and hopefully uh, being able to reach agreement with them on, a, on an approach to address those uh, uh, within the uh, confines of our resources and theirs. So uh, with that, I, I will stop and uh, happy to entertain questions about that or anything else I didn't just anything uh, you'd like to discuss. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, moving on to the medical staff reports, Dr. Baden. Good evening. 
One correction to the agenda, I'm listed as the interim chief of staff. I'm actually here in my capacity of, of um, being your vice chief of staff. Um, due to the uh, resignations of Dr. Ballard and then Dr. Hearn, uh, the uh, MEC met this week um, in a special meeting and made a decision to invoke section 11.3-2 items L and P of our medical staff bylaws, whereby we can designate a committee to fulfill medical staff function. So to that end, we have formed the interim chief of staff committee which I am um, pleased to announce the members of. Uh, the members of this committee are Dr. Valerie Ng, Dr. Kevin Smith, Dr. Eric Yasumoto, Dr. Brandon Besh, and Dr. Nikita Joshi. Happy to take any questions. Questions? Is it the case that um the materials for the medical staff reports are in uh, QPSC only? Is that what's happened? That is correct. Okay. I, I just want to make sure everybody knows you can go look at them over there, not that uh, there's anything uh, of concern. It's just they weren't in this packet. So, Other questions for Dr. Dr. Baden? Does that conclude your report today? Yeah. That concludes my report today. Thank you so much. Okay, sure. Questions for Dr. Baden? All right. We have Dr. Ingenio next. I don't see him. I don't either, although there's some phone numbers here. Dr. Ingenio? All right, is, let's see, well, we can maybe come back, um, Dr. Marzouk. Dr. Kathy Pyun actually sat in for Dr. Marzouk at the QPSC. I do not see her on this, uh, I don't know, I do not see her listed here. Dr. Pyun? I don't see her either. Okay. the chair this is tracy i have a question um actually about the medical staff reports sure i, I recall that um the qpsc under dr Bouquet's direction had made a uh made a, a, a proposal and i'm not sure if it was adopted to have the medical the medical staff reports come to the full board so instead of just QPSC, but I see today that that none of the reports came forward. So um, can, maybe Taft, could you just share the status of that? Yes, uh, so I, th that might've been an execution issue. Indeed, that is correct, Trustee Jensen. We have migrated uh, the, the, the body of that report to come to here for discussion and open dialogue. Uh, and within QPSC, while an agenda item is still held, it's largely procedural uh, for the component. So I do not see that any reports have been migrated. And then of course, the centerpiece is the, the verbal report from the chief of staff. So Dr. Bouquet, is that something that is something that we need to do to make that happen? Is that just um, alerting the clerk of the board to uh, uh, place that, that in the that, packet or? That, that, that's between, uh, I will help navigate that. That's between okay. the uh, director of the medical staff office 
who I believe is ill today and isn't here, and and um, and the clerk of the board making sure that those those documents can migrate to here. Okay. Did that answer your question, Trustee Jensen? And and my so from next meeting onwards, it'll still be the reports will be. Uh, um, the chiefs of medical staff will present reports at the full board, right? The, the, this is again the design. Uh, hopefully, except this was the primary forum for dialogue and uh, 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 issue illumination by the chiefs of staff. And um, I, I, I defer to the chief of staff or who sits in that report to get to, to choose what to speak about. Did that answer your question, Trustee Banerjee? Yeah, I I was asking more a process question. It's just that they, because this is a special meeting, maybe we don't have. Yeah. But in future meetings, yes. doesn't in, uh, it's not the issue, but the we will have chiefs of staff report at the full board meeting, right? Correct. Correct. That is correct. the intention. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. okay. This is this seemed to be a kind of an unusual situation where the other two were also out it seems or away as well right so it's up here i mean even for the qpsc meeting right uh, uh dr pune was uh able to be present for the qpsc and uh, right i mean I'm, I'm sorry i mean like the regular chief of staff or the or, or the director in the case of engineer uh, yes i i think so uh yes mm -hmm. sorry okay <laughs> Sorry. So do we not have a chief of staff now? Uh, you have five. You have a, a, a trustee DeBreeze, you have a committee of, of a chief of staff. Uh, the, the, uh, to, to my recollection, the, the med staff has never been in this position. So we, uh, the, the med staff uh, conferred with our council, executed one of the elements of the bylaws to create an ad hoc committee to serve all the functions of the chief of staff, i.e. reporting here, i.e. signing off on credentialing, mm -hmm. i.e. doing uh, issues of competency and professionalism and the like. So action, action by committee until there is uh, uh, an elected official. Dr. Baden, sorry. Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention that this committee will serve until which time we can have an election to elect the next chief of staff. Sorry, I, I should have specified that this committee will serve until that time can take place. And is there a projection um, as to when that election will occur? Not at this time. Um, our, our regular election um, takes place in December. Um, and there is the option for a special election if, if the med staff has given 45 days notice. Um, but in order to do that, we need a candidate first. So um, this committee will work towards that end. Um, uh, expediently, I'm sure. Great, thank you. So, just so I understand, um, Dr. Baden, were you, you were for a minute the interim chief of staff? No, sir, I was not. I am. I'm here in capacity of as vice chief of staff. Okay. All right. I know what it was like when the city of Oakland had three police chiefs in two weeks, and it's never good. And and Dr. Baden, you are permanently the vice chief of staff. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm I'm I've been your vice chief of staff since uh, the last one stepped down, 
and it is my intention to serve out the rest of my term as vice chief of staff, which will be to the end of this calendar year. Thank you. Other questions for Dr. Baden? And then I guess we just don't have Dr. Zinjinyar Marzouk and we're not aware that we wouldn't. I don't know if there's anything that, um, well, Dr. Bouquet will do his QPSC committee report next, but any questions for Dr. Baden before we go there? All righty, Dr. Bouquet. Sure. Um, thank you for having me talking. Thank you, Dr. Baden. So uh, this is the report on the July 23rd QPSC. Uh, per process, we did our standard work. We approved policies and procedures. We heard from the uh, SBU, uh, and then we actually heard from quality and the like and from the medical staff reports. The ad hoc rep uh, committee report was the intensive outpatient program. As many on this committee know, this is, this is a topic with uh, a lot of passion and emotion and implications for how we direct our system. We continued that dialogue today uh, I encourage any of you to to look at the uh, the, the Zoom on the discussion today. Who knows if I uh, if I adequately stewarded that dialogue, but we did have a dialogue today on the IOP. Um, as you know, I, I bring articles to every QPSC. The article last time was, which I think is apropos to us. I and get, again encourage the trustees to read it. It was called Ten Questions to Guide the Board Guide Boards Through Pandemics." I want to read you what those 10 were. They're very uh, intriguing and curious questions that I think are appropriate. Number one, what can you do? This is what boards should do. What can you do to ensure the health and safety of your workforce? What is your CEO succession plan? What is the company's ability to cover near-term expenses? What trade-offs do we have to make around payroll expenses? Do we need to adjust our supply chains? Are we prepared to work remotely for an extended period of time? How do we keep our company culture alive? How are we interacting with the financial markets? How strong is our underlying business model? And are we behaving as a socially responsible organization? I think great questions for any board of any healthcare system to address. The other notable for uh, that, that evening's discussion um, was uh, uh, we, uh, we made vote for uh, on our new set of True North metrics for calendar 2021. I'd like to review for you uh, the, uh, the 12 items that we landed on to be our quality related True North metrics uh, starting July 1 all the way to June 30 of 2021. Number one, well child visits. Number two, acute observed to expected length for hospitalized patients. Next, medium time decision to admit to bed. Next, avoidable days, QIP metrics, all-cause 30-day readmits, hospital-acquired infections, hospital-acquired harms, safety alerts, the percent of events that resulted in harm, our HCAP score, our recommend the practice score, and the one that, that I think many of us have a, a lot of hope for and pride, it's the first time that we're striving to put a equity pillar in it's going to be a quarterly diversity report by pillar. Uh, it's 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 a work in progress, um, but we we are now I uh, I'm happy to say trying to put equity on the system dashboard. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of growing pains about how to get it right and the data management, but but I think this falls in lines with the principles. Um, sorry for the lengthy talk. That's my close on the July QPSC report. Questions. 
Thank you. All right, the COVID-19 task force, um, we continue to meet every other week. I don't have a whole lot to report. I think um, we're still in the thick of it, but perhaps we've gotten, it's gotten more routine. The craziness, the, getting accustomed to the craziness has gotten more routine, I guess I'll say. Um, we have had certainly an increasing number of COVID positive patients um, within the hospitals. We're reaching all time highs um, as has the county, I think overall um, in terms of hospitalizations um, and ICU. Um, and there seems to be some indication that the um, average age is going down. Um, so these are some of the data points that we are wanting to sort of look further into, um, you know, as a committee. Um, but I think in terms of capacity, in terms of access to um, remdesivir um, and, and also uh, PPE, all of those indicators are looking good. Um, and so we, we're just um, continuing to do that work and um, inviting in our partners from the county um, about once a month or so uh, in, in order to talk about specific topics that we might have questions on, uh, like the isolation and quarantine hotels, like, um, like some of the uh, equity uh, work that we're, that we're also honing in on around COVID-19. I don't know if Tobekio uh, or Trustees Banerjee or Bouquet wanted to add anything. I can add just a little bit. I see Trustee Hernandez has a question. Uh, that was great. Um, uh, yeah, it's been, I, I want to just thank you, uh, Dr. Ablada and uh, uh, Trustees uh, um, uh, Banerjee and uh, Bouquet too. It's been a great sounding board and you guys have been incredibly uh, uh, insightful with your questions and your guidance uh, uh, and for our efforts. Uh, I would add, you know, a shout out to our testing uh, efforts with Dr. Tony Bene and Dr. Gupta and Dr. Ng and a host of other people uh, that is going really well internally. And there's some promising signs, um, at least, and we're very hopeful with the county. Um, I think in terms of, you know, testing capacity, it has gone much better. I mean, we uh, had that brief blip with uh, Quest and the county has ramped up and we're looking uh, pretty good and sustainable for a while. We've also gotten in our own uh, um uh, additional testing with Hologic, uh, the county's efforts to reach out to a new uh, outside uh, uh, vendor. I'm going to blank on their name now. Something gent, fulgent, I think it is. Uh, uh, and our work uh, there is uh, uh, showing some prom promising signs as well. So I want to highlight that stuff. Uh, I also want to highlight the PACE team. Sorry, a little bounce back. Um, we are continuing to work on some uh, uh, outreach and uh, um, um, kind of community uh, um uh, uh, advocacy efforts and one of the big things you may have seen in social media a couple of over the couple we, we had both local and uh, statewide elected officials uh, uh, being a part of our mask up Alameda County effort uh, so we've had them all over our social media um, um, uh, venues um, and really uh, have like I said local mayors um, uh, assembly members and even uh, I should say shout out to Congresswoman Lee uh, who's also been a part of it. So it's been a great effort. We're continuing to look at avenues to do more. Um, um, and I think that's it. And I, last, uh, you said Rindesivir going uh, well. It's been a real big team effort, but thank you to Dr. Baden too, who has really been helping to champion and get our stock up. Uh, we are, we're pretty well stocked right now. Uh, um, hopefully, uh, you know, adequate uh, uh, given what might happen in the future, but uh, looking forward to um, getting a vaccine and, and being uh, on the floor of uh, providing that 
that to our community as well, as well as being ready for flu season and part of our marketing and preparation efforts are now looking towards how we can um, uh, as much as possible get ahead of that, look at our outpatient uh, testing um, or our outpatient uh, um uh, drive up uh, capabilities and how we might use those for flu vac- vaccinations and partner across our clinic sites where, where necessary to use those uh, those uh, mechanisms as well. So, I think that was that was pretty much it. Uh, question: uh, What what is our turnaround time on the test results? Uh, with the county, it's been averaging and uh, us. Tar- uh, Dr. Tornabini to check with me or uh, correct me or Dr. Ng if she's on. It's about two to three days, so we're still in a really good space there. And then internally, uh, if it's our rapid test, it's within like 90 minutes, I think, or an hour or so. And if it's the um, the uh, uh, Hologic uh, test, which is the uh, uh, RNA test, uh, that that one takes a couple of hours, I believe. Uh, is that right, Dr. Tornabini? Yeah, and actually our Hologic test is, uh, the turnaround time right now is between 12 and 24 hours, but that's dependent on the the frequency with which we run the instrument during the day, which is twice a day. Okay. I I had a question. Um, As we're kind of um, bracing for flu season and then also at the same time reinstating some of the elective services and things, so the testing for folks who are presenting with like symptoms or the other are we ramping those up like other i have gone maybe the last time i've been to san leandro hospital was a couple months ago so i don't know is the tent still in san leandro hospital are there tents at the highland and other spaces do we need to add more if we have to test more in the coming months with flu and um and a greater volume of patients coming through our doors so great question. So we uh, we don't use uh, the tents for our testing sites. We we use the tents. Uh, uh, we had them at the acute sites for screenings as patients were uh, being uh, um, brought into the emergency room settings. At uh, San Landro, we actually never had a tent. Uh, we were able to use a uh, or uh, have readily available a indoor facility uh, to be able to screen patients uh, safely there. Um, all of those areas, my understanding is across all three sites, uh, we have um, uh, deactivated the tents uh, and uh, worked out new workflows uh, to be able to bring patients into the settings. The last place, I believe, was Highland that we uh, deactivated. Uh, that tent um, continued for a period of time, and it was in use for about 12 hours of the day, I believe. Um, uh, and then over time, now we have... Um, I. Uh, deactivate that, that that tent as well. We have them ready to go if we need to stand them up, and it's really uh, more a uh, artifact of if we start to see more uh, volume of uh, patients who are coming in who exhibit symptoms that warrant uh, additional screening uh, that may compromise our ability to safely bring them into uh, the uh, either the waiting room or the indoor setting um, um, uh, safely. So. But from the testing perspective, I'm sorry, uh, quickly, on the testing perspective, uh, uh, so, yeah, we, we're not using them for those purposes. And I think, and Dr. Turner, I can uh, actually this, um, our testing capacity has been um, uh, increased, or I shouldn't say uh, capacity, but demand has been increased and more sustained at Highland than it has been at San Leandro. Uh, but we're keeping them both now until we open our community site, uh, which we're hoping to do with the county soon, and then we'll reassess whether we... Um, um, do like pop-up type of thing where we uh, do it at certain sites if the volume is less on a kind of a periodic basis and not have it every single day if that's not 
and, and redeploy the resources if it's uh, more, most optimal to use them in that way. Thank you. So in Highland, anyone who's like being screened is completely separate. Uh, there's no like there's um, from the ER, there's no. Um, there's there's still uh, in Dr. Sharmidic and uh, activists. There's still outside screening. Um, the the tents uh, were used for continuation of treatment if the patients needed it. But we have a different uh, mechanism for doing that in inside uh, now. So, uh, Dr. Nguyen, if you want to add more to that, yeah, that's correct. So, for patients who come in with symptoms and there's no room at that moment to to see them. There are some um, barriers that have been put up inside the emergency department waiting room right now um, at Highland. Uh, we um, we certainly I, I think it's a it, it's a great question as uh, I think it's something that all of us are worrying about is what is it going to look like um, having both COVID and then influenza? What is that going to do with our volumes? And I think we have to remain nimble and keep. Um, if we do need to reopen the testing workflow for the low acuity ESI uh, emergency severity index uh, patients, then certainly that's something that we need to then reopen if we're in a surge. I have a question about the plasma treatment that seems to have been chatted about in the news, and it seems like it has some promise for patients that may have no other, um, you know, other measures have not worked. Are we doing anything to help collect that plasma? And if so, how do we distribute that now? Dr. Baden may want to speak to that. Well, we are not doing anything right now that I'm aware of to collect this plasma. Um, although, um, we certainly could be encouraging our patients who are recovered from COVID to donate plasma. Um, we are on a case-by-case -case basis using convalescent plasma. Um, previously, through uh, um, access through a, uh, a, a, the access is shifted now to emergency use access, and so this week we are shifting to that as well. But we had access to it previously through a um, IND, through one of the institutions in the United States that was offering it. Um, so we have used it. Um, I do think we probably should be doing a better job of encouraging our patients to donate um, do, once they recover, and that's something we can start to focus on. Do we have capacity to do that, however? Well, we would have them just donate at the Red Cross, which is where, um, yeah, but but just messaging that that could be something they could do during their recovery, um, I think is an important thing for us to consider. So. Um, yeah, Del Vecchio, I really think that that would be something, uh, maybe just simply a public service campaign, Twitter, whatever, but it just feels like that's become something that I've seen more and more um, institutions have been looking at. I, I don't know the effectiveness of that though. Um, Dr. Baden, is there any clarity about how? It's really, it's, it's really not clear um, how effective it is. Um, I, I think, I think for us, it's something we do as almost a last resort. Once we've tried everything else, we know to have some data um, behind it behind its efficacy. Um, and we do, again, have access to it. We just order it through the blood bank now. Um, but again, it's not its not clear. I think all of us are wanting more data, uh, more robust data um, okay. in the form of a randomized con control trial to really understand whether or not this is a benefit to our patients. Um, so I'm hoping for that at some point that that will be available. Keep us posted. Let us know. Will do.
Yeah, it's been around for uh, almost the beginning of the uh, pandemic as one of the options. I think it took on greater um, uh, press in terms of the ebb and flow. We're, uh, I think, we're past hydroxychloroquine now, and this was a new thing. And I, I remember the FDA commissioner having to come back and um, either modify or at least clarify some of the context around uh, some of the initial statements that came out on Sunday. Uh, I want to just say one thing quickly. I see Trustee DeVries, uh, Daphne, uh, Dr. Ying wanted to make sure uh, we share that uh, the lab is actually actively working to increase uh, capacity and in, in planning for uh, both flu and COVID testing from a uh, lab perspective. On, on that note, I'm sorry, can we go back to the outside tent testing situation? I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused. So are we, did we close down the outside tent testing area? We, we don't use a tent for testing. Uh, we use a tent for screening and some care for patients uh, when uh, we needed to keep them uh, segregated from the emergency room setting uh, because we were concerned about either a surge or our ability to segregate those patients from other patients. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, we uh, always, we establish, I shouldn't say always, once we established the capacity at all the sites, uh, we were using them intermittently as the needs uh, dictated. Um, uh, we were able, by virtue of uh, low volume and low demand and our ability to handle them within the uh, context of the facilities at the two other two sites to do that sooner than we were able to do it at Highland. Uh, at Highland, we uh, stood it, uh, kept it stood up for a uh, longer period of time for a portion of the day, uh, even when we kept it for the last couple of weeks, I believe it was only part of the day, not the entire day, meaning that during the rest of that day, patients uh, were being uh, treated uh, through the normal uh, process. They were screened outside uh, for symptoms and, you know, why they were uh, coming to be treated, uh, uh, given a uh, uh, triaged and then brought into uh, the setting, uh, whereas during the uh, day when the tent was up, they were there. Over time, uh, it was consistently about what do you say of that 12-hour period, we were seeing about, I think, 10 patients or so uh, on average uh, during that period. So we staffed the, the tent and we were seeing about somewhere around, and correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Turnabin, but my understanding was it was somewhere around um, an average of a patient an hour. Uh, and we okay. uh, concluded that we were able to take care of that volume if that demand level continued within the setting and we could deploy resources differently uh, uh, throughout the organization. Was there a concern about... Oh, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Trustee DeVries. Just to add that we still do have our drive-up, walk-up testing area in our garage, uh, which is a fully separate workflow than the tent. Just clarifying that. Okay, I see. Are you thinking about a drive-up, walk-up for flu as well? Yes. So uh, we actually have... Um, uh, at our Hayward site now, we do some drive-up vaccinations for kids, I believe, or, or teens uh, um, at Hayward. And that model is one that uh, we are looking to expand to flu vaccines. So uh, we've been able, we have a good landlord at the Hayward uh, Wellness Center at the mall, basically, that has facilitated our ability to keep people, you know, from having to come indoors and they can drive up and get a vaccine and keep moving and or yeah, vaccine now. And then uh, where we would extend that to flu vaccines uh, um, um, uh, going forward. Uh, at Eastmont, we have a bit more of a challenge, but we're looking into uh, uh, ways. We got some good advice from Trustee Abelotti. So we're looking into ways that we might be able to do that at a different part of Eastmont um, uh, and, and hopefully expanding it to other sites as well. Are we along those lines? Are we looking at, at the tests that that test for both COVID and influenza as well? 
I know we're just getting our COVID testing <laughs> ramped up, but just oh, I don't know. Of, okay. Uh, oh well, but uh, we got the docs here, so maybe one of them can throw me a lifeline. <laughs> I know we're actively exploring all testing options, and that we we're having a meeting, I believe, next week to talk about. Um, what we're all worried about, which is how we're going to add influenza into the mix um, in just probably a few short weeks. And so I know Dr. Ng is always exploring all available options and is, I'm, I'm, I'm certain on top of this. So we'll, we'll report back more when we know more. Thank you. I had, um, you know, Kaiser reached out to me in my capacity at the city because they're setting up multiple drive up sites and we're worried about some traffic engineering solutions where, you know, we have people queued up on the street. So I just, you know, if, if that's a consideration, um, I think whatever city our facilities are in, their, their, their Department of Transportation or Public Works would probably be very willing to accommodate us. Um, well, it yeah, it definitely is. We, we, uh, I had the uh, privilege of joining Dr. Turnabene and we went to a couple of sites. Some of them were uh, walk up like routes, uh, uh, mm -hmm. two of them were uh, drive up as well. And uh, yeah, we um, traffic considerations are definitely real. Uh, fortunately for us at Highland, despite actually uh, during, uh, and I think we operate about four hours a day and we're having pretty good volume uh, traffic and it's inside of uh, uh, a, our garage here, uh, that was, mm -hmm or the uh, lower uh, HCP garage here, uh, it has not created a traffic issue so far. And it's been several months now that we've had it in place. So, uh, so far. So. I had a clarifying question, but it doesn't um, uh, relate to COVID, uh, but it was something that I wanted to ask from July and I haven't um, relating to the dashboard. Um, and that is, the uh, normally the pediatric patient is seen by CHCN, right? Like we don't have a big caseload of so this this uh, dashboard for well baby. It's the postpartum, or are we talking like a full on pediatric caseload in the uh, in the ambulatory primary setup? Oh, you mean oh for the quality piece? Uh, no, I think we we mean pediat we mean pediatrics. We we don't. Uh, you're you're correct. We don't have a a sizable uh, pediatric population relative to the overall county, but we do uh, have, uh, we do uh, provide ambulatory pediatric services. Uh, you may have heard me talk about my, my daughter is a patient here. Uh, so, uh, so we mean for those patients, we, we see pediatric patients here at Highland uh, and at uh, Eastmont and I believe at Hayward. I, actually, I think at all of our wellness centers, we see pediatric patients. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Other COVID questions? All right, thank you. Okay, Alameda Hospital Seismic Planning Ad Hoc Committee update. Trustee Peterson. You're on mute, Ross. Well, that makes my report that much quicker. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really have much to report. I think, uh, you know, we were uh, looking at the legislative advocacy and uh, Trustee DeFreeze had agreed to uh, help us in his report uh, he already presented and unfortunately it doesn't sound great at this point. Um, I think uh, we also talked about uh, exploring kind of some other uses for Alameda Hospital. Uh, one of the discussions was around the emergency room and at this point, the couple of options we were looking at don't seem viable. Uh, 
uh, although we're still pursuing the one around overflow kind of transferring from uh, Highland to Alameda Hospital. So the idea would be that uh, if Highland was filled, then having clients actually diverted to Alameda Hospital. Uh, there's some issues around the uh, ambulance systems. Uh, Alameda has their own self-contained ambulance contract with the fire department. And so uh, uh, the ambulance, uh, ambulance companies that uh, normally go to Highland and other public hospitals are not, um, not really incentivized to go to Alameda because they really can't take uh, uh, traffic going the other way unless it's a lateral transfer. Uh, but we are uh, talking about having perhaps having some discussions with uh, with the fire department around it, but it doesn't look very um, promising at this point. Uh, and we uh, are planning to have a, a follow-up seismic uh, meeting in early September and then uh, want to put it on our board agenda for next month and have some more in-depth discussion about next steps. Hey, Ross, doesn't the fire department have leadership that play a strong role in the Alameda Health Care District? Uh, yeah, I believe one, I believe one member of the fire district is actually on the, uh, on the, uh, board of directors. That's Mike. That, is that right, Gracie? Mike, right? Yeah, Mike Williams is the, he's the chief, he's the deputy chief. He's the president of the AHCD board. Yeah. So maybe so one want to have a contract that hinders us from transferring patients that will keep hospital alive. I don't yeah. think he wants to hinder patients from going. It's it's not a fire department decision. It's a city council decision, basically, whether to and it's more about keeping fire fighters on the island than it is about having off island transports on into Alameda. So, but the contract prevents other ambulance companies from taking patients from off the island? It, it doesn't allow them to answer call in Alameda. So if, the, if you were at Alameda Hospital, you were uh, an ambulance company, you brought a client to Alameda, then you have to do a dry run back to Oakland. And because allow, all the dispatch is going yeah. to be to the fire, Alameda right. fire department. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point. There's not, like, Oakland wouldn't call Alameda Fire Department to, or paramedics to come do a rescue in Oakland, and similarly in Alameda. Um, I believe, uh, the rest of Alameda County, I think all the other cities uh, rely on the county EMS. Is that correct? I think there, I think there's one or two uh, that have their own. I, I don't know, maybe the city of Berkeley, and you know, I'm not sure, but I think there are one or two. I guess the point is, it's, it's, it's like the, the previous point with the elected official from Alameda County, from the city of Alameda, who doesn't seem to be looking at the interest of Alameda Hospital. It's the same thing, you know. If, if there needs to be some local skin in this game, there need to be some local solutions. Yeah, well, I, I, I think the next step would be for us to have some uh, dialogue with them. And, you know, we talked about the possibility of possibility of having EMS and and us sit down with uh, sit down with the fire department and see if there was a way we, we could make it work. I mean, you know, the, the theory here is that um, we have one pre-COVID or in the absence of COVID, we have one 
one ED that's overloaded with clients, and we have another ED that has significant unused capacity. And, and is just there a way clear, we can... Ross, um, just to be clear, there's no reason why anyone cannot go to the Alameda Hospital Emergency Department. There's nothing to prohibit anyone from coming from anywhere to the emergency department at Alameda Hospital. So right. just to make that, be clear. But, about they, but they don't now, right? I mean, you know, obviously. We're trying to create, as I understand it, to, Trustee Peterson, we're trying to create a um, volume increase uh, by working something out with EMS or then and or the fire department to guarantee more delivery of patients to Alameda Hospital. Right. We have we have one we have one hospital where they're so overburdened with emergency room clients that they've got pre now pre COVID again as many as 30, 50 people waiting in the waiting room. And we have another hospital where they have very, very low volume. And right. so the idea was, you know, whether it's viable or not, I don't know. But the idea was, why couldn't we have ambulances from Oakland when they picked up clients, transfer them to Alameda? And there are parts of Oakland, like Chinatown, that are closer to the hospital, as close to uh, Alameda hospitals. Yep. Island. I just well, think so it's isn't it like the Eddie program, that, which was like if you had, like seeing where the uh er departments were where, where the the bed count was full and that they could take the county ems could take them to mm -hmm. the hospital which had um the capacity we wasn't there a pilot at some point in time eddie or something i forget what that was called oh i think you're 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 so there was a program called eddie but it was the information exchange um oh, you're, information. you're talking about the uh, paramedicine program uh, or perhaps you're talking about it. I don't know. So, uh, and that was that was a program that was designed to uh, try to facilitate uh, better coordination of care between the patients who were being discharged uh, from the hospital and to uh, um, try to uh, keep them in the community and avoid unnecessary rehospitalizations. Uh, and that was uh, a partnership where the hospital partnered with the paramedics to do kind of wellness checks or visits uh, with the patients post discharge to make sure that that care coordination between discharge and the follow-up care uh, was good in terms of medication, doing housing assessments to make sure that, you know, it's, the environment appears safe, they had food and stuff like that. Uh, that was a pilot of one different version. Um, there were about 13 different versions, I think, statewide of a paramedicine program that was designed to try to extend um, uh, the scope of the paramedics uh, to support um, the care continuum. That was, uh, it was somewhat controversial. I think um, uh, CNA was a uh, opponent of that too. They felt that there was kind of a scope creep that uh, got into a home health uh, space uh, and, uh, and ergo nursing. So there's always some turf wars happening with stuff like this, but but that was the pilot that was in Alameda and the Alameda Fire Department and us participated in that. So, but to Trustee Jensen's point, I think there's nothing to stop people from going to the ED in Alameda. And I don't know what the breakdown is between ambulance or people arriving on their own, but a lot of people go take themselves to the emergency departments, not all the ED. And I know um, like at Roots where we're sort of in deep East Oakland, close to the uh, border of San Leandro, you know, if someone does have to go to the ER, a lot of folks from Oakland automatically think Highland. 
but yeah. they could be reminded and primary care providers could be reminded that there are other um, emergency departments within our system. So I'm just curious if this might be more of a communication with some of the primary care providers, Asian health services, others that might be close to Alameda, just to raise awareness that, that we have this um, ED with relatively less wait time. Um, so I don't know, that's just a thought. That's a great, that's a great. Okay, I think um, yeah. the, the Highland primary care docs left that kind of reduced, had another impact on the volume in the, of the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a good point, uh, um, Dr. Avalada, and I think that it, just communication and outreach would probably um, do a lot to increase the volume more so than trying to figure out a way to 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 have um, county EMS providers decide take patients to Alameda rather than the closest hospital that they are to. It might be informative to know the breakdown between ambulance and right. walk-in. I mean, just to help target our thought process here. Okay, well, I'm, I'm working with Louise and so, uh, maybe uh, when he gets back, maybe we can discuss it. And I'm sure I can work with him around it. Yeah, I do. I, I remember stats from San Leandro Hospital that the majority of emergency room visits to San Leandro Hospital are Oakland residents. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I don't know if that's still the case, but a couple of years ago, that's what was presented to us. Yeah. I think we actually have to pursue both. Um, sure. Right. It would be great for, you know, primary care clinics, you know, in, in the Chinatown and Fruitvale area to, you know, consider uh, referring people. But I really would be curious what the ambulance, you know, rate looks like, because um, we wouldn't send an Oakland firefighter to Alameda. Tracy, you're absolutely right. But Oakland Fire isn't isn't the ambulance. They, they, they're the first responder. But then EMS actually picks the people up and, and takes them to the hospital. But it sounds like in Alameda, the fire department has that exclusively. Right, right. Um, exactly. And that hinders, that's why ambulance companies don't want to go over there because they come back empty. Right. Um, and and their, their, next, their next call might be at, you know, 98th Avenue in Oakland or uh, right. off of Gulf you know, I think, I, think uh, I think it'd be important actually to, because we're doing some hunching here, I think it would be better if we had data some, some data that suggested where we are we know we're way under volume now where do we need to be what what's sort of the threshold that we need to have on our volume at yeah. Alameda hospital ed and then um and then you know uh somehow determine what's what's uh what strategies would get us to what volume uh, so, so do some planning here okay so can i uh trustee aboleta uh, we have uh, we have among us among the group uh, Dr. Nikita Joshi, who is the director of the ED at Alameda Hospital. Uh, I don't know if you allow her to uh, maybe make some comments. I don't know, uh, Nikita, are you still here? Yes, us? I'm here, and I would love to answer if it's appropriate. Please. Okay, great. So, yes, like Dr. Jabalani said, I am the medical director of the emergency department at Alameda Hospital. And I've been the director since 2019. And absolutely, our volume has been down by almost 50% since COVID hit. And we will see a daily volume in the emergency department ranging from about 30 to 40 at the maximum. So we're very low. Um, as I mentioned, Highland sometimes has that many people just in their waiting room. Right. When you look at the EPIC data uh, and EPIC 
like uh, was mentioned, is our EMR, where we get all our data. It's about two-thirds of the patients present themselves. They walk, they bring themselves to the emergency department, and about one-third are coming by ambulance. So ambulances will get anywhere between 8 to, let's say, 15 at a maximum in a day. Um, And we have certainly in the past had on occasion an ambulance come outside of Alameda Island. It does happen time to time. Mm -hmm. And I have also spoken with the ambulances themselves, and they um, often will bring patients to Alameda Hospital, but every now and then they feel if there's a service that we don't offer or if it's a Kaiser patient, then they will choose to take the patient to somewhere else. So they do exercise some degree of independence in that regard. And I would be happy to answer any other questions that you have or present data to you uh, at another time as well. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Joshi. Thank you, that's very helpful. Well, we'll, we'll take, I'll take these suggestions offline and talk to Louise and we'll figure out next steps. Great. Thank you. Anything else on this topic? Great. We have the consent agenda next. Were there any questions or discussion on the consent agenda? Do you get a motion? I'd move. Yeah, I have a question. Um, I'm concerned about not seeing the actual policy around charity care, which is on page 222 out of 21, and the security management plan, page 11 out of 21. Um, I'm concerned about the charity care policy because if there's anything that really uh, creates enormous stress and strain for our patient population, it's how do we determine who receives charity care? And that impacts and affects health equity tremendously. So I'd like to make sure that we look at that. I'd like to remove also the security management plan because it says the board of trustees reviews and approves and I haven't seen it. Um, So normally we have the actual policy inside our packet and the others don't seem as um, uh, scary (laughs) to me as this this one. Um, Have you all heard what our plan is? Is this something that any of us have seen? Um, it just feels a little bit scary to approve that one, given the way that it's phrased. So with your permission, I certainly would vote to approve the policies if we remove those two and review those later at a different point in time. Uh, Second the motion. Can I, can I um, just, I apologize for uh, interjecting. Um, I, I, I'm actually um, okay with it. I thought that they were actually in the, QPSC packet uh, when you, when they came through there is that I, I believe they were in the QPSC packet. Okay. Um, those well, voted on. Those are voted on in the QPSC then, right? Right. That's my understanding. Yes. Uh, so these policies and procedures. Yeah. Could, right. Could we look? Uh, well, okay. I, I, you know, I have to say, I, I think it's better practice. I think uh, Trustee Hernandez is making a very important point terms of process it's better that we have all you know any anything we're approving should be literally in the packet 
So will it be harmful to wait until we meet in September? I, I, I from my perspective, no. Uh, I think it was just uh, uh, timing and the process of bringing them forward. So I don't think. And actually, I want to underscore your your uh, uh, comment about charity care. And in fact, actually, uh, uh, Trustee Shequin has endorsed actually for the next um, um, uh, uh, finance committee meeting having a discussion around uh, not just the charity care policy, but our, our policy on uh, how we handle uh, debt and collection and things like that for your express for the exact purpose you're mentioning which i ask uh, uh the aha and having the opportunity to serve on the board uh has really underscored that this is uh, not a lot of it's not it's not um uh, necessarily as common as it should be now for those types of policies to actually be viewed at a board level and i think uh not just a policy but our experience and practice around uh what happens in that context particularly in the vein of equity and supporting our community is very important and we are looking to to uh, uh do that at next month's uh, qbsc so uh, i'm sorry at next month's finance committee so i i have no issue with it i i apologize i don't i i thought we put these things in the packet and i didn't catch that it wasn't there so typically what we're supposed to do is at the QPSC make the recommendation that the board approve it. Right. Which is what we did. But I would like for the board to take a more active role looking at those two because they're so important to us. Uh, so, the yeah. so if I could just jump in, I, we include the policies in the addendum after the primary board materials. And so they, they are in the package for QPSC, QPSC approves them, and then when they come to the board, and I don't recall specifically why that is, but we put them after them because they do tend to be somewhat I think it's because of the link, yeah, yeah, we, of all of them. We, we, we as a group made that decision. It, it does start on page 105, and I'm sorry, I did not see that, but okay. it does go to page 515. Right. <laughs> so that, that potentially is the reason why I didn't get that. Okay, so. You're, you're uh, not reading novels every night? I mean, what's uh, You know, this would be good for when I get insomnia. That's all I can yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Again, I just would like the pause because those two feel extremely important to us. And if we haven't really read the details and we're just going to pass them, I, I think that that's not a good idea for those two in particular. So, I mean, it's obviously it's your prerogative and happy uh, to, to do so. And it sounds like you were moving in that direction. We would, but I just want to be clear, was this, you're not asking, uh, thank you, Mike, for the clarity. Would we, we would just bring them forward still in the novel, in the format that it's in? Uh, and then, uh, in the next uh, Ask you to, to make sure you get to that part of the book because it, it, yeah. it's a page turner when you get there. And if, needed i think we should have the ability to bring the staff responsible for that policy but we'd need to let you know that we would want that so Absolutely. yeah yep. of course thank you, you. so i guess the other part would be you know for qpsc and dr bouquet is that there, if there if there is a robust discussion about a particular policy that you think you'd want at least the full board to know that these things were contemplated before passing or that you're pulling it to have further discussion with the full board. And I know we do that in finance sometimes, but um, you know, the, the stuff you have to go through is so dense. I think, you know, we're, we're grateful that, you, that QPSC does that and makes the recommendation. But um, to trust Yernetta's point, I think there are certain things that might be good for the full board to know what the discussion was or, or something like that. So just wanted to just offer that, I guess. 
You know, and, and if I could make one more comment, you know, I think it might also be helpful, you know, for there, if we could get a, uh, perhaps, uh, and this can be done offline, some, you know, greater clarity about uh, the concerns that we have in this. Because one of the things I'll point out, you know, the charity, you know, care policy is, is more designed, you know, is, is a regulatory tool. You know, it basically sets out the strictures that allow us to avoid, uh, you know, the Stark and the anti-kickback laws and, you know, what those standards are as opposed to perhaps something that might be a little bit, you know, different than some of the issues you're talking about. So it may not be that policy, but the issue, you know, you know is an important one. So we should talk to make sure we understand what you would like more information on so that way, you know, we, you know, here you get the policy and you're talking about that and then realize we still haven't answered the issue so i think it's a great point yeah, it's, it's fair. I, I think it's a great point i i do believe uh if i'm hearing you correctly uh, uh that the conversation that we were uh hoping to tee up in finance committee next month would be in the vein of of, of uh, what you might be looking for and it's in a it's a different policy uh that calls out how we handle uh, uh billing and collections uh and uh, that's in here too isn't it is no it uh i don't think so i think we were still we were still playing with the draft and then getting it ready for finance committee so it shouldn't be i don't think that's one of the policies you have okay uh, apologies reminder we in qpsc we also pulled the ucsf perinatology uh um right. uh, so is there a motion are we yeah is there a motion? <laughs> Sounded like Trustee Hernandez made one and Trustee Jensen seconded it. I, I just simply asked that we pull those two in order to reflect on those before we approve. Okay, and so we will we will move to pass the remainder of the consent agenda minus those two items. And, and the UCSF. Matt just said there was one more that was pulled in QPSC. Those two and the UCSF perinatology. which is the last one under Highland Hospital on page six of 516. Okay, thank you. All right, all those in favor? Aye. 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 Me abstain? Okay, so, okay, motion passes. All right. So now we will go to our uh, action and discussion items. First, we have a report and discussion from Dr. Victorino on AHS surgical staffing and coverage. Mm -hmm. Dr. Victorino, welcome. Thank you. Um, so this is uh, my report on the uh, surgical attending schedule. And the schedule uh, for the attendings really needs to be taken in the context that we're a level one trauma center and that requires in-house call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. We also cover the two community hospitals for general surgery, that being Alameda Hospital and San Leandro Hospital. Um, attendings typically take seven to eight total calls a month. And that's broken up into four trauma calls and three to four community hospital calls. Um, for weekends, what we usually do is um, divide it really between uh, two attendings here at Highland. Um, one attending will take the Thursday and Saturday call, while the other attending takes Friday and Sunday call. And this is really to allow the other attendings a weekend free of all clinical duties. Um, um, 
there was a comment about vacation and we are limited uh, uh, on our vacation time due to UCSF's rules and regulation. And we usually get five weeks a year. So depending upon how long your vacation is and how far they're spread out, uh, will determine, you know, how frequently and, and how long those vacation times will be. So I think that um, our attendings work schedule, it can be considered on the demanding side. I, I don't feel that it is unsafe. And I discussed this ish, issue specifically with Dr. Browder, our chief of trauma, and also Dr. Sujati, our vice chair. And they both agree that this is not an unsafe um, schedule. <clears throat> that being said, uh, the industry standard is probably less than our current seven to eight calls a month, as this would probably be considered to be unsustainable. Um, but definitely continuing clinical duties after being on trauma call overnight would uh, not be considered in keeping with the industry standard. Uh, we had one open FTE that we were actively recruiting for, and we had gotten it down to shortlist, and we were um, um, uh, providing offers for this position, but then COVID hit. UCSF had a hiring freeze, and because of the financial situation here, we took that FTE off the contract uh, for general surgery for this year. Um, uh, but that should be uh, in, in play next year. And But, it, you know, it, it takes a good nine months to recruit, hire, and get the, the surgeon's boots on the ground here and working. So that'll take some time. Uh, therefore, uh, we met as a group at the Department of Surgery, and we implemented a, um, a program to relieve the post-call attending of the clinical duties post-call. Um, we started this August 3rd. It seems to be working. Um, uh, no, no program like this is going to be perfect, but we're making small tweaks to the program. Um, and uh, it'll hopefully provide some uh, relief for the post-call person, but um, it does mean we're kind of, um, you know, um, sacrificing another attendee's uh, clinical duties because they already have a uh, a schedule, a service. They're responsible for a set of patients and uh, a whole uh, surgical team, and now they're going to be having to cover two of those. Um, but that's the short-term fix. The long-term fix uh, being recruitment and hiring of this um, additional trauma surgeon, um, hopefully uh, by next summer sometime. I'll end there and then open it up to any questions the Board of Trustees may have. Dr. Victorino, when when will the process begin for trying to recruit this empty seat? Since you said we sort of decided to hold off on it, um, can, and could it be sooner? I guess. Well, for academia, usually the fall is when um, the recruitment uh, um, occurs, and this is, has to do with fellowships and training, and it all kind of ends next year. So everyone coming out of training kind of looks. Um, they're starting to look for jobs starting this fall. So we'll start that process now uh, with UCSF. And um, I will say that having done several of these surgeries with UCSF, it, it typically takes that long because it has to go to their uh, equity committee to make sure that the appropriate um, candidates are there. We have to have the, the appropriate committee 
with the right mix. So it, the process does take some time. Thank you. Other trustees have questions for Dr. Victorino? Dr. Victorino, um, you may have mentioned this and I, and I missed it, but did, are there, how many surgeons are there right now, general surgeons covering Alameda and San Leandro and um, Highland hospitals? Nine. So there's nine surgeons and you mentioned how many surgeries there are. Can you mention that again? How many, how many operations? Yeah, the average number of surgeries that each of those nine surgeons cover. Um, it's really hard to say. I'd have to go back and, and get those numbers. Um, have you seen an increase since um, things are opening up a little bit more? Well, we are. Um, we're now in phase two of our um, um, opening up you know, elective surgery plan. And so we are starting to see more. Trauma has picked up. It has increased uh, uh, with COVID and the uh, Black Lives Matters uh, demonstrations. We've seen an increase in our trauma volumes. And so we've been quite busy here at Highland. I would say that our volumes at San Leandro and Alameda have uh, been a little uh, below pre-COVID levels. And so do you feel comfortable that you're able to handle the increasing number of surgeries at Highland and the stable number of surgeries at the other sites with nine surgeons right now? Yes, I do. Thanks. So if I understood you right, Dr. Victorino, I'm just making sure I got it, is that the number of days of call and then it is not is not too out of the norm, but it's the fact of the consecutive number of hours a surgeon will work by virtue of them having to have clinic after when they're post-call. And that is what you are looking to mitigate with the plan that you started on August 3rd. Correct. That is correct. And Okay, so the number of calls is roughly going to stay the same, probably even after the position is filled. That's not something that we're looking to, that we, that's not something that we feel was, a, was necessarily a red flag. Oh, I, I think that will be fixed. I think, you, you know, seven to eight calls a, a, a month is, I mean, it's, it's not easy. And um, um, it is something that I would want to fix. And this extra person would, of course, um, help decrease that that number. Um, but in addition, this person will, you know, provide the post-call uh, attending um, relief without having to cover service. Because right now we have all the services covered, and this extra person can come in and provide that relief and take over, and they won't have to double cover uh, another service. I don't know if I'm answering that um, accurately. Thank you. Dr. Vitrino, so... Um, when were um, so we had two hospitals that were added to the roster, right? So before San Leandro and Alameda Hospital were added, when your surgery department, the UCSF folks, did just highlight the core, how many were your FTEs? Like how many were added when two other hospitals were added? Is what I'm asking, wanting to ask. Like what was the what was the number of surgeons before the addition of the two hospitals? Oh, I'd have to go back because it, it has varied so much. Um, and to give you an accurate number, I, I do know that um, we were asked um, from Dr. Jamaldine's predecessor 
um, to help out at, at San Leandro. And, um, and that was because they needed to cover the emergency room. And without general surgery coverage, the emergency room were closed. So we didn't have the FTE at that time, but we were given an FTE. And then later on, we were asked to uh, uh, take over the general surgery emergency and hospital um, cases at Alameda. So that was an, an additional FTE there. Um, but um, I'd have to go back to know the exact number to, to tell you accurately. So when, so, so when San Leandro Hospital was added on an urgent basis and you needed to have that coverage, the docs covered without having an extra position that was done. They just did that with this, with the case, with the number of surgeons that you had. That, and then when Alameda was added, one FTE was added. Correct. Okay. Thank you. Greg, we added the FTE for San Leandro before uh, Alameda, if I remember well. Uh, plus, we, uh, if I remember well, we folded in breast surgery. And uh, I mean, I, I, I think can't recall, I think we added about four FTEs, three or four FTEs gradually. Uh, and then with Dr. Harkin leaving and you taking over and uh, you know opening your position as chief of trauma. So uh, all of this unfolded over the past few years. Uh, I mean, we had the opportunity to, uh, to meet today with your team, Del Vecchio and myself and listen to them. Uh, but uh, I mean, the concern sometimes, you know, uh, we talk about the volume of surgery and decrease of volume is really the morale among the team. And it's, it's really very hard with COVID, with, with all uh, the sheltering in situation, the load on us. I, I am, I am, uh, I, I'd like you to comment about the morale of the team uh, from your perspective, at least, or what can we do to, 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 to address this? Yeah, I, I think that the morale of the team is, is, is very good. And I, I have not worked with a department of surgery that is so collaborative uh, with each other. Um, we actually like each other. We hang out with each other. We, we cover for each other. And at other departments of surgery, that type of camaraderie do, does not exist, um, not everywhere. So I, I, it's, it's a joy working with this group of surgeons. It, it, it really is. Um, I, I think uh, that, you know, stress is a, a, a heterogeneous experience and uh, individuals um, will perceive it differently. And what may be seen as uh, a challenge for one person can be perceived as a threat uh, to another. So I think people's perception of of the, the workload and whatnot is 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 different, but uh, generally speaking, I would think that you know this one FTE would would do wonders um, for the uh, well-being of of our surgeons. Now that being said, I mean even since August third, when we initiated this this new program, I've had individuals uh, attendings come up to me. Um, um, separately and say, hey, you know, um, 
because I kind of we've kind of done this before, but there's been some pushback and and people don't like to ask the others to cover for them. They have a lot of pride in their work. They have a, a strong work ethic. And so they don't like taking advantage of it, or at least in their minds, taking advantage of it. So come August 3rd, I kind of said, you know, we're, we're going to do this. Everyone's going to do it. And and it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. Uh, but since then, I, I got a pushback from a few of them and they say, you know, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I really agree with this um, in totality. I know at the timing that we're going to have to do this. But for instance, today, I, I feel I'm well rested and I have a case on today um, and I have worked well with the patient and the family. I consented them and I feel like I should be able to do this case after this afternoon. And because of this new program, they were not able to do that. So I think there's a downside to anything we put into play. Greg, I'd like you to comment also on the expansion of the residency program. Uh, we have added, I think, uh, some residents, uh, if I recall, two residents, you know, with this uh, with this transition with, uh, with San Leandro, if I recall. Uh, maybe you can shed some light on this. Yeah, we did. We did add one extra uh, resident um, to um, take uh, to cover San Leandro and Alameda. Um, I would say probably uh, a quarter of our residents go into private practice, but we didn't have a private practice rotation. And so they were kind of going into this career blind without knowing what a, a community practice, a private practice would look like. And so we, um, had this, we added this extra uh, resident to go out to the community hospitals to learn what it was like, to learn what, was, what it was like to work in a smaller hospital Unlike, uh, unlike a large trauma center where you have a lot of, um, you know, support and whatnot. So it is true. We, we did add an extra resident to, to help with the workload at San Leandro and Alameda. Greg, this is Taft. Um, as, as you know, in 2002, the American College for Graduate Medical Education made a landmark position to limit work hours for residents. And, and for those of us who trained before then, there were never limits you know, we'll call that the old school. Um, they limited it at 80 hours. Um, uh, there was never a similar pathway for attending physicians. So um, you made discussion about, you know, people can ask for help or whatever. Have you entertained the idea of setting a limit? Uh, and I think you made a little bit of discussion about this because it's been previously asserted that 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 some of your physicians can go 100 hours without, without uh, and the like, as has been discussed. So, so talk to me about that at, at, at limits and perhaps a choice shouldn't be given to a doctor at a certain point. Uh, it should trigger a system rather than being subjective. I think I'm not tired and all that. Can you comment on that? Yeah, that's, that's a great point, Daph. And um, there has been discussion on the national level, much like there has been discussion on the age limits of a practicing surgeon. Um, the controversy is, is you're absolutely right. It's very individualized. So, you know, some people throw out the age of 70 as when there should be mandatory retirements for surgeons. Because as we all grow older, we lose our hands, we lose our eyes, and um, some would argue even our cognitive abilities. Um, but others know surgeons who are well into their 70s, pushing 80s, who are very functioning, doing well. Um, out there in their practices. So it's, it's very hard to set a limit because it's so individualized. 
and it um, you know the American College of Surgeons kind of leads it up to the local leadership um, to determine these type of limits. Yeah, so in, an interesting decision. You know, the pilots' unions certainly have have positions on how many back-to-back flights they can do. But to your comment, you're right. They leave it up to the local management. So, how are you going to do this? Do you feel it's safe to have a physician be able to go out to 100 hours in a week? Um, well, I, I think with the right um, system of support, yes, because we've hmm. been doing that for. Um, as long as I've been here. And I think that, you know, as far as trauma goes, you've seen our trauma quality data, and we are in the top 10% of uh, uh, mortality when it comes to treating trauma patients. So I think that the data speaks for itself. Uh, We provide great care, and we're doing it at our current workload. Do you think we're in the top 10% for physician wellness and non-burnout? Um, that's a hard question uh, to answer. Not really. <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, we just had a grand rounds on on this this morning. Uh, uh, physician burnout and surgeons, especially trauma surgeons, have a very high rate of physician burnout, and it's something that I uh, struggle with all the time because, uh, once again, it's it's different from individual to individual, and and. Um, it's very hard to to kind of wrap the whole group into a, 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 a single answer. So I'd say that, yes, probably some of our surgeons are showing signs of burnout, and that may be our more elderly surgeons. Our younger surgeons, you know, they're, they're coming and say, okay, I, I, I need more. Give me more. You know, I, I want to do more. So it, it, it all kind of depends. So back on the math, you know, the math problem. So your system does allow for a situation where a physician could go to 100 hours in a week. 100 hours would be probably on the outside. We probably max out in, in the low 90s. Okay. I wanted to, oh, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. So I, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I mean, I, I think what triggered, if I have this right, your attendance here, your report, which I very much appreciate, was uh, right in front of our very eyes at our last board meeting. We uh, heard from a physician who was um, telling us that uh, she had worked enormous hours. And you know, I'm not a uh, not a professional uh, <laughs> in terms of being able to determine uh, stress and its effect, but I can tell you. I was affected by um, and concerned by what I was seeing and hearing, quite frankly. Um, And so I think that's the space that the trustee, you know, and we're responsible fiduciarily for uh, the risk management of this organization. And so unfortunately, I I wouldn't argue with any of your points. The, The problem is when the the issues are gonna happen, it's gonna be really bad. Because, I mean, what what you all are responsible for is in, in, incredible, uh, has incredible impacts when you don't don't do it well. And so I, I am left. I and I'm people who know me know I'm a pretty as an administrator. I'm I'm pretty willing to settle with you know individual answers and everything you said. 
I feel comfortable with, except for this issue of our fiduciary responsibility. And so uh, to Dr. Paquette's point, I, I, I would push back and say, I think you need to continue that consideration of some limits. And uh, I actually heard it in your sharing this, that, that some uh, attendings found uh, the, the most recent solutions uh, discouraging to them or whatever terminology you want to use. I mean, they found it hard to live with, but maybe the consequences of that uh, certainly are justify, justified by the fact that there's some other great benefit, like less likelihood of a malpractice. So yeah, I, I guess I, I'd want to follow up on that if I just could really quickly, and, and maybe maybe Taft, because I'm part of that old school crew that got trained before 2002, um, that when those things were implemented, I, rem- I remember thinking, and maybe because I survived it, you know, I just remember thinking, uh, wow, what a loss that they don't get to follow their patients after they admit them overnight. Then they, they get kicked out, you know, and they got to go home. And I just remember so much learning happening, like when you follow up and get to see sort of the results or get to continue with what, what you started, so to speak. And so when Dr. Victorino was explaining about having a rapport and a relationship with the patient and expecting to do their case and then having to have someone else step in can actually impact quality or the patient's perception of that quality as well. And so I just want us to have a balanced um, approach to this. I know that some physicians, some of us are gluttons for punishment and that's not a good thing. And we shouldn't foster, you know, a, a, I think an environment that um, that allows people to, to not have, you know, I think a qual- quality of life. But, um, but at the same time, I think I also really respect professional autonomy and believe that at that level of training and expertise that, you know, I want to be able to trust um, someone's professional autonomy and an opinion of what they're capable of doing. And there's times when leadership has to step in and say, no, I disagree. And this isn't going to happen. So I guess my question or thought is my question is how good are we at identifying signs of burnout and how good are we at intervening when that happens? I would probably say I'm, I'm not that great at either of those, and it's definitely an uh, opportunity for me to improve. Um, I know that I'm going to have um, individual discussions with each and every one of our surgeons to kind of get a better feel on where they lie and what their hours, maximum hours are. Um, you know, uh, we split call pretty evenly, but maybe... You know, some of the um, more senior surgeons are at that point in their career that they're saying, you know, maybe I don't need uh, four trauma calls a month. And and I know that some of the younger surgeons are always asking me, you know, I could do more than four. I'd love to be out there if if you need me. So I I, I think it's an individualized approach, and I I, I will try to get a better handle on that in in the next and up and coming weeks. Wonderful. I'll, I'll make Trustee Hernandez happy and say, if you're not measuring it, you're not managing it, right? So. <laughs> yeah. And I want to caution a little bit. I think that, um, you know, the saying, uh, youth is wasted on the young. And sometimes <laughs> what I think can happen is um, certainly a, a 35-year-old surgeon is going to have a different energy level than somebody at 60. And yet, I have to say, we know that there is burnout among young physicians. Um, 
Alameda Health System suffered a very tragic uh, suicide a couple of years ago of a young physician. Um, I, I just don't want us to be um, too uh, too too uh, uh, open to letting people, you know, do whatever they want to do. I think there are some standards that we should follow, and um, just be extraordinarily cautious that uh, we're not fostering a culture that creates that kind of, um, you know, potential for burnout. Because uh, the dangers are really high for the physician and for the patient. And let's make sure that we're in it for the long run. You may be 35 and you can work a, you know, 12-hour shift, 24-hour shift, whatever it might be. But it takes its toll on the body and we need to respect that, right? So I, I want a little bit of a caution of, about those hours. No, I, I appreciate that. And I, I do remember when I was a young trauma surgeon, I would meander the halls and walk down to the ED and just to see what's going on in, in times where things were a little quiet. But uh, as I went on my career, I found that those hours were better spent doing other things that I couldn't do in uh, other parts of my day. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, let's teach let's teach work life balance a little bit, <laughs> just yeah. to make sure everyone's in it for the long term. Thank you so much, Dr. Vitrino, for clarifying that and for also saying what you know. Especially thanks to your team for jumping in and covering when you had to do it at a moment's notice, almost. Um, but I wanted to just follow up on one thing because this was triggered by Dr. Bullard's. Um, and this is happening, you know, everybody's working hard, but also to understand that she wears so many hats. She was, she's the general surgeon. She's the chief of staff. She is one of the prime people who does disaster management and control. So uh, when she speaks about how many hours she is, I know that when I go to a board meeting, uh, if I'm presenting, I have to prepare for like so many hours to do my presentation, to do my report, to get all of that. So when someone says that, it 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 involves like the different hats that they are wearing. It's not all of that. So you raised a really good point, Dr. G, where you said, Kasan, uh, uh, where you said that morale, you're worried about the morale uh, when you spoke to them. So as the CMO, um, you know, the buck stops with you. Like, how are you given like the COVID and all of that? Like, how, what, what, what are you doing to improve like the morale, uh, for example, like even um, for someone like Dr. Bullard, who I think has been, it's good for her that she resigned from this position, but I hope she did that. But how have your conversation with her been about how she's perceiving, is she feeling supported now? How, how and how are you managing the morale of the folks around you? So uh, uh, I uh, have not had a conversation with Dr. Bullard. Unfortunately, she went on vacation and I had to take off also before. So we didn't have uh, uh, that conversation yet. And uh, I wanted the presence of uh, Dr. Victorino uh, uh, in our conversation. And also he had a family event that he, he was also out for some time. But we are going to have that conversation. Now, as it, to, it relates to... Uh, burnout in uh, in general, I really depend on our physician leadership. I depend on the chairs. I depend on the chiefs of divisions. And and we, we, we address it. You know, I come from the older generations. 
of uh, physicians who I have worked without having uh, my graduate medical education, uh, like the hours limit. Actually, the Libby Zion case that happened at Cornell, I came right afterwards into my fellowship and I used to talk to the physicians who were affected by that case. And then it brought in the, the, the physician hours, especially for the residency program. Uh, but also I worked also in war zones where we used, uh, you, you know, we had, to, we had to work because there were patients coming all the time. And, uh, you know, uh, you have heard about the explosion in Beirut. I, I spent a big part of my time when I took off to communicate with, with my friends, uh, you know, and, uh, and physicians who, who were affected with this. You know, during these times, uh, you know, when you are working, the burnout does not happen because there is a great meaning. Uh, uh, there is a great meaning to what we are doing as physicians. I have seen physicians, nurses go to the fire line and work with, uh, you know, very limited resources, uh, 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 like during, during very, very dire circumstances. And we have never, like, this burnout came about afterwards. And in my, I believe, uh, I believe, a great deal has to do with how we have uh, transformed our healthcare system by putting barriers to our execution of the mission. You know, uh, whether whether we have to fill in papers or whether we have to do non-meaning work or whether, we, you know, we are going to do a surgery and we don't find the right instruments or the right support. These, these are very, very important elements. Uh, during during uh, the execution of the of the mission, that we forget about them and and putting barriers between us and 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 uh, uh, and and our patients, uh, so and not working as teams. So these are very very important elements that really we are looking at it and discussing them. Uh, it is not only like giving free time or 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 giving. Uh, 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 like uh, perks that that will improve like the well-being they are important but really we have to look at executing the missions uh, executing the mission in a meaningful way and and having this this joy of delivering the care uh, while we are executing the mission so that's that's really my short you know answer to this Well, I appreciate that, Dr. Maladi, and I know that the paperwork and the and the administrative burden that comes can create burnout all by itself. Um, so, I know that that's a that's a real thing as well. Um, but you know, I I do also think that um, the work of a physician is harder now in this crisis, no, no matter what. Actually, Absolutely. the work of anyone operating in this just the fact that you have yes. to be on and worried about this invisible enemy like the whole time you're working, Absolutely. regardless of what service it is, or just regardless of, of even what position you have in the hospital setting. Um, the work, what it was six months ago is, 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 is much tougher today. So I guess, um, you know, to, to that point, I would just say, um, I agree. You have to rely on physician leaders, and that's how we, I sort of started this evening too, but talking about physician leadership and how important it is that physicians be alert to this kind of thing, um, regardless of what generation physician you were, or when you trained, or how you trained. That we all know how to look out for our colleagues, look out for one another, and and just make sure that um, you know that we know how to identify those those warning signs or those red flags. And so, 
you know, whether that's uh, training, because I think some people have a better sense of it than others. And, and, and unless you get those kind of training, maybe you won't um, necessarily perceive that because it is very individual. And sometimes burnout could have something to do with completely not even your job. I mean, it can be other things going on, but still it's important that we, because we're taking care of other people, be able to identify when someone is sort of, you know, uh, you know, getting to that point where they may not be, um, providing the, the best care that they, they normally could because of what they're going through. So I just, I, you know, I'll probably continue just to flag that because I think it's something that it, um, is important that we instill, I guess. No, absolutely. I think we need to have a structural approach and strategic approach towards burnout. And especially in this, in this time, I totally agree. Can I just say, just as an add-on, and I actually wanted to stay out of this conversation, I love uh, hearing the doctors and, and you all speak about this, but uh, so the trustees know, I had, um, uh, Dr. Jamaluddin, correct, he was out for a personal matter, and Dr. Victorino was out, and then Dr. Boulard now has been out uh, for, I think, a week of the two weeks, or maybe this is the second week. Uh, but I did have a chance to speak with her twice uh, before she left, uh, and I'd be happy to provide some input, but I think it's probably better for private consumption. Um, um, so I just wanted to put that out that it is not belabored entirely. Uh, I feel like the bug also stops with me. So I want to make sure that's clear. Thank you. Any other questions for Dr. Victorino or any further discussion on the topic? Thank you so much for for coming this evening and providing this insight is very clarifying and helpful for us. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Great. I will move us now to the heady task force update. Trustee Hernandez. You're muted. I'm happy to provide the update. I do want to direct everyone to your packet. Um, I can share on my screen uh, just a reminder of where we are. Um, and I know that uh, we wanted to talk a little bit more about the health equity pledge or mission statement. I think we've got a couple of different ways of thinking about this. Um, let me share my screen. Can everybody see that? Yep. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry, um, Trustee Hernandez, just to remind you, we, we, this is, um, it was the, the TAC team effort here. So we provided, we prepared a slot, uh, PowerPoint. I, I want to make sure that we had an order, and I think we were going to end with the pledge with you. So right. that's correct. Okay. So I wanted to see if Ishwari wanted to review where we are. Would that be okay? Uh, yeah, that's how we were going to start with okay. Ishwari. That's and correct. Ishwari, I'm happy to forward the slides for you. <laughs> Let's see. Ishwari, you may be on mute. I saw you there. But I know she's here. She was. I saw her a second ago. Oh. oh, she maybe she's having. Are you having audio challenges? Uh oh. Let's see. She looks like she's trying to. Oh, up. okay. She... Do you want to dial in? We can't hear you. We can't hear you. Technical difficulties. Um, should, should we, if you if you dial in, but maybe in the interest of time, either either one of us could start. Okay. 
Um, Ishwari, if you can um, call in on the phone, we'll hear you and I can advance the slides for you. Okay, I think she's got that. Um, so, um, Delvecchio, do you just want me to start where I, I Yeah, could? Okay. I think we could. Yeah, so just a reminder to everyone that the HETI structure looks like this. Um, there are five task forces for the committee and what they have been working on uh, at this point is reviewing sort of an assessment of where we are in terms of some of the strengths and opportunities within each of the areas of these task forces. And I think in your packet, you can see uh, the wonderful people who have volunteered and stepped up and done an amazing job of really truly asking themselves, what uh, is the current state in some of the best practices and activities that are in their respective areas of work. Um, so the chairs of each of these uh, different task forces have also met uh, to um, continue to discuss where the status of that is and they are beginning to facilitate internally um, some priority to identify priorities from each of the task forces identified areas of opportunity. So there's no way that um, any one group can select, you know, all 10, all 20 items to work on. Um, they would absolutely need to prioritize. And so that is one of the tasks that is uh, taking place right now. And you can see all of the beautiful people that are involved. And here's the sort of big uh, overview of the process. Um, Ishwari, are you there now? You're on mute. No, oh dear, okay. Um, all right, uh, so were you able to dial in with your phone? Can someone unmute her from this end? Is it, is she, is? No, I think it's, it's Mike. Okay, I think, I, I think this is a short, okay, good. I'm so sorry. You. Can you hear me now? Yes. <laughs> So sorry for the challenges here. I was, I'm on the phone as well, but unfortunately, um, for whatever reason, I couldn't unmute myself. So anyway, um, thank you so much, uh, Trustee Hernandez. Uh, I think we are on the slide that's talking about the um, uh, process and where we are. Um, so, um, um, so just as a reminder, we started this work um, back in actually summer of last year. Um, when Del Vecchio um, and we hired an intern from the American Hospital Association Institute for Diversity and Health Equity, we got a summer intern who came in to do some preliminary work just to kind of assess where the current state of uh, uh, health equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts are in, um, at Alameda Health System. And that's what I've uh, kind of noted um, as a pre, actually have not noted as a pre-starting point for this work. If you recall, trustees, Del Vecchio came, uh, I believe, sometime about this time last year um, with um, kind of a proposal for the, the process um, and um, shared the initial assessment and the AHA guide, and we formally launched this work, um, which is now currently chaired by Trustee Hernandez and Del Vecchio Finley. Um, as Trustee Hernandez uh, shared with you, uh, we do have a very robust 
um, involvement from all layers of AHS that are currently participating in this work. Uh, we formally kicked that off sometime uh, end of last year. And we actually took a considerable amount of time, almost a couple of months between December, January and February to ensure that our task forces are represented by a variety of um, AHS uh, participants across, um, you know, really being trying to be inclusive and utilizing the heady principles and making sure that we have a diversity of experience, diversity of representation, um, across campuses, across roles, and across positions. And so we currently now, as you saw from the wonderful pictures of our task force members, we have about 55 or so uh, task force participants. And kudos to them, I'm really just representing the work that um, they've been doing. And they've really been working hard uh, despite COVID, despite all the challenges, they've been working incredibly hard um, over the period of, um, you know, early part of this year, March to May, in uh, refining the current state. And again, um, thank you so much to Trustee Hernandez for providing her um, uh, assessment, uh, which is very robust that we are currently using in identifying the current state and honing in on where our strengths are and our priorities. That part is more or less done now. And uh, the task forces are now working through the process to refine their priorities. And um, um, as a next step, now we will um, 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 present that to a wider variety of AHS through focus groups um, and, and then um, do some work again to refine the priorities, which we hope to bring back to you uh, with our, you know, our fingers are crossed, barring there are no barriers uh, to our progress. Um, unforeseen barriers for our progress that we would come back sometime towards the end of the year to trustees to share with you our work effort thus far. Um, while we are doing this process, um, we also, um, uh, as you all know, Trustee Hernandez has developed a pledge and, I'll, uh, and she'll discuss this um, at the tail end of the presentation. Um, as a part of our current state, uh, we also did identify some quick wins, uh, the task forces did. And, um, I, I, and that also um, uh, will be something that Del Vecchio and uh, Dr. Joshi will speak to in a few minutes. But if we could advance to the next slide, please, uh, Trustee Hernandez. Um, and I apologize because my laptop is now frozen, so I do hope you can see the slide. Yeah, so we are um, and, and with the quick wins with uh, Dr. Blackstock's uh, photo. Oh, okay, great. No, I had a slide before that. Yeah, there you are. Oh, great. And, and really, this is, again, not to belabor the process, but really just to remind you that this is not a one-and-done approach. We are trying to utilize the PDCA where we learn, we execute from this uh, current effort that's underway. And once we've developed and executed and, and are in the implemented implementation stage of our priorities, um, we will be uh, tracking that with a, a dashboard that is looking at the, you know, tracking where, how we are doing. Um, uh, there's an effort underway to integrate some of the metrics into existing dashboards. And really, this is a process that continues on uh, with, uh, you know, next year again with a new set of uh, priorities that we identify, feeding new task force members that want an opportunity to inform and so on. So this is really not a one and done. This slide is just to, uh, again, remind you that this is something we, if it's successful, which we uh, really feel a lot of excitement and passion 
amongst the task force members that are participating. So we know that from their um, excitement that this is something that they feel very um, grateful and passionate to be involved in, that we hope to continue this effort and also continue to build and, 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 and um, strengthen our heady um, uh, work throughout the organization. Um, I'm going to pause here, actually, and then turn it over to Del Vecchio uh, to uh, discuss some of the quick wins that um, he and others have been implementing. Yeah, thank you, Shwari. I would say, and one other, uh, uh, um, add on to what you just said, uh, the iterative process we actually uh, really feel is, is um, uh, uh, encouraged by those individuals who are already participating and those who have expressed uh, great interest in participating going forward. And we really see this as a, a nice uh, platform to continue that work and to include different voices, uh, um, more voices and different voices as we move along. Uh, but one of the things that we were very sensitive to, and we've talked about in this context, uh, as well as inside of the organization, uh, that was really catalyzed by some of the conversations that um, 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 occurred around the um, unfortunate inc incidents in uh, Minnesota and in other parts of the country, Georgia and other places uh, uh, with the uh, murders of African-American men and women, uh, many at the hands of law enforcement or those who, uh, you know, felt that they were part of law enforcement, but maybe weren't or weren't, um, uh, was that, uh, that we appreciated. And I think many in the organization appreciated that the work uh, was underway, that the organization appreciated the need to do something about this um, uh, a, a while in terms or long before this. Uh, but they also felt this sounds like it's very process heavy and we want to see stuff now. And so um, uh, there were some things that we uh, uh, began to implement and talk about uh, um, to try to advance some of those efforts, but also recognize that uh, we needed to lift up some efforts that a lot of our uh, uh, leaders, whether they're in clinical and non-clinical areas, were already doing, including uh, um, uh, some great work and extended work uh, happening in our OBGYN department, uh, really driven around the um, uh, issues and opportunities that we have around equity. But as it relates to the HETI committee and some of the other work we uh, were doing, uh, one of the things that you'll talk about in a second is the HETI pledge. Uh, that uh, Trustee um, Hernandez uh, uh, sort of inspired, and I will uh, let her provide an update later. Uh, but we, uh, I talked about the CEO forums that we do, and um, in, inspired by the work that, uh, or in a very unfortunate event that we had in the uh, emergency room with a patient at uh, San Leandro, uh, some of the work that was led by uh, Dr. Joshi was to uh, really respond to that. And so um, we uh, found this, or... Uh, she produced this wonderful effort uh, that we, she was gracious enough to allow us to share with the entirety of the organization. And so uh, I want to pause actually in the rest of this, um, uh, my part of the they turn it over to her to really talk about uh, how this uh, came about, as well as to uh, highlight some of the additional work uh, that she's leading, uh, particularly at Alameda, but uh, extending across the rest of the organization. So Dr. Joshi, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Um, as uh, like you mentioned, earlier in the springtime, we had a really unfortunate event, actually at Alameda Emergency Department with the patient. But all this was happening in the context of COVID and really the idea that there were significant disparities between African-Americans, Hispanics, overwhelmingly being impacted by COVID versus the rest of the population. And so these were ideas that I was already having. And so once this event happened with the patient and I thought, well, can we do to really show that as a group, the emergency medicine doctors, that we care about these topics and we're learning, um, I had thought to invite Dr. Blackstock to come speak to us. 
Um, I've known Dr. Blackstock for many years. She's an emergency medicine doctor from New York who actually left academic medicine to start her own organization because she realized how important it was to speak on these topics of racism in medicine. And knowing her and knowing that the topic was so important, I thought that it would be appropriate to invite her rather than to have me give this talk or, or some, you know, the way we typically do these things, go big or go home. And I had talked with Dr. Blackstock and after this event, that's when George Floyd happened and it helped me to crystallize even more what it is that I wanted her to speak on, which was really not just the disparities, but really the racism in medicine and our role in perpetuating and fostering that system and what we can do to break that, whether it's through explicit forms of racism or in some ways more insidious, the implicit forms. So one of the things we also talked was how important her coming would be to every one of us in the institution and not just the doctors. I wanted her to be heard at the people who are our housekeeping, the people who are our cafeteria workers, because we're all part of this team. And also because these essential workers tend to be those who are disproportionately affected by COVID. So I really thought her talk was amazing. My favorite line from it was that it's not race, that's a risk factor, but racism, which is a risk factor. And I thought that really encapsulated the way we approach patients. We often start with, this is an African-American man presenting with chest pain. Uh, we throw that in there as if it's really pertinent, and sometimes it is. But how we react to it is the racism. And it's that is what leads to the disparities, not the fact that this person is born with a certain color or a certain genetic makeup. So, you know, I thought that that talk was great and the feedback was really powerful. Um, and then to follow up with what we're doing, we're starting a patient experience council at Alameda Hospital. We're still early phase. We've worked on a charter. Louise Nakata has been working with me. Darshan's been working with me. And we are going to create a committee of um, the healthcare workers, the doctors and nurses at Alameda Hospital, and patients and community members at Alameda Island to create a committee that can understand the patient experience and work on finding solutions that can be implemented. So real actions that we can take. We hope to have our first meeting mid-September. And that's wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Boxock, for your leadership. Uh, for uh, oh, Dr. Boxock, Dr. Joshi, for your leadership and bringing Dr. Boxock, I, I couldn't agree more. It was our uh, highest attended uh, um, 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 town hall uh, since we began. I think we were close to, if not over 700 uh, people on the call and the feedback uh, in the moment uh, was just very rich and powerful. And I, I looked, I think yesterday, and we've had over 100 people view it online uh, uh, since that time. So it's uh, it's continuing to uh, have resonance and I, I, I know it will continue to do so for our organization, as well as the additional work that you're leading, very strong uh, leadership and uh, um, um, forward leaning. So thank you for that. Um, if I may, may I in that way, and I want, just wanted to add something because how noble all our doctors are, we know that. And just yeah, last Monday, there was a paper out which said the mortality rate of black newborns shrunk three times when black physicians took charge of the yep. birth. Um, so black newborn babies in the U.S. are more likely to survive childbirth if it, and you know, if they're seen by black physicians, that is how I'm, I'm pasting the link in the chat. Um, but that it's shocking 
It, 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 it was actually. And I uh, had one of our pediatricians shared with me, uh, uh, Dr. or Dr. Trustee Banerjee. And uh, it was that uh, it was actually, I think, concurrent with or right after I had that conversation with the uh, patient who I didn't disclose earlier, but uh, the gentleman was African-American uh, who uh, shared his experience. Um, um, and uh, yeah, no, it, it resonated, I think, in a way that really just continues to underscore the the urgency of this work and uh, the importance of what we do, uh, both in the health equity as well as the diversity and inclusion space. Uh, so in the interest of time, just keep moving forward. But actually, let me just pause for a second, because I know Dr. Joshi has been here for a while. Uh, uh, if any uh, if you have thoughts or questions for her, maybe we uh, I don't know if she can hang around. But in the interest that she needs to leave, I know she has small uh, kids as well. Uh, if you have any questions for her or uh, feedback, uh, maybe we can just take that now. Is it possible for the trustees to see the uh, recorded presentation? Because ironically, um, Dr. Blackstock and I have spoken about the work that uh, Impact for Health is doing, and um, her company is called Advancing Health Equity. That's our tagline. We had a very funny conversation, but it was right before she got into her media blitz. So she's been on every show that you can imagine. So you're very fortunate that um, she was able to make this happen for you. But we'd love to see it. it, yes. it, it, it it's on the uh, internet. I think all of you have access to the internet. It's in our, on our coronavirus resource page, all the CEO uh, uh, chats. Uh, so I can we can send you a direct link to it. Uh, uh, and if you have any issues accessing it, uh, uh, we can we can work on that. Other other any other uh, comments or questions for Dr. Joshi? Would it be possible for board members to um, attend or, or be informed next time there's one of these? Um, Absolutely. We actually, uh, we apologize for the late notice because we were still doing coordination, but we did uh, uh, send out uh, about two days before this uh, a uh, invite to you and let you know that this was occurring. Apologies if that didn't make it to you, but we specifically sent it, uh, uh, again, a little bit of short notice because of logistics, but we did uh, try to do that. So, And we will in the future as well. In fact, I should share now that we're working right now with another uh, physician who happens to be an African-American woman who started a company that's um, um, actually uh, working, our, our company that works on uh, uh, physician burnout. And uh, we're trying to, our next feature uh, town hall will be on burnout. Uh, that's been a big part of the conversation today. And I think we're looking, we're anticipating that may be the end of September. I don't know if Tony's or uh, Terry's still on, but we're still working on that. Uh, we'll, we'll be sure to let you know as soon as we can. That's correct. September 30th. Okay. And you're you're invited every week. We do this every Wednesday at noon. Uh, but uh, if it's a focused topic, we'll be sure to let you know. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions for Dr. Um, Joshi? Okay. We'll keep moving. I think uh, the next one actually turns it over to you, Trustee Hernandez. Uh, I, I can't see you. Um, actually, there's one more item here that's an action. Oh, item. yes. My apologies. Yeah. Uh, I'll just speak to it and you can, you can. So uh, as uh, trustees, hopefully you'll recall last, I think it was last month, uh, uh, in addition to the uh, ongoing work that the um, the task force uh, have to do to finish their work that Ishwari mentioned earlier, uh, their uh, trustee Hernandez uh, suggested an idea of doing a series of, um, of I want to call them affinity group uh, discussions to really uh, spur some of our uh, or deepen our discussions around diversity and inclusion in the organization, uh, having discussions around I, the way I framed it in my mind was uh, what is it like to work at AHS as a 
X, fill in the blank. So that could be a woman, African-American, Latin X, a uh, person with abilities or otherwise able, uh, 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 blank. and we've been working on uh, the framework for those discussions. Actually, our, um, um, uh, our case group leading that, so Terry's uh, helping to kind of facilitate it for us, and uh, so we'll be reaching out to you soon. Um, uh, Trustee Hernandez is graciously agreed to participate in a lot of those. She's doing similar work with another uh, entity, uh, but we're also opening that up too. So um, uh, the goal is to have at least me and one other trustee uh, participate in those listening sessions effectively that can inform uh, and guide some of our additional work as well. And that's all I had to say, but trustee um, Hernandez. Well, and there's one more. Um, given everything that's happened um i was working with another system and i learned that they actually had an official statement endorsing black lives matters movement and um, i know that del vecchio wrote about this in one of his um, ceo uh, newsletters but i would like to invite our uh, trustees to consider having a statement that we adopt and potentially to place that on our new diversity and inclusion uh, page inside the um, website. Um, if you haven't visited, it has our video announcing the committee, but it doesn't have much more information. And so again, one of the things I do whenever I start working with the system is I actually try to find out what's on their diversity and inclusion page. So we need to be sure that our page uh, speaks to uh, these activities. And I think having a commitment from the trustees about supporting Black Lives Matter uh, as, as a public health and a social justice issue and as a uh, important part of the work that we do in health equity is, is appropriate. So um, with everyone's permission, I'd love to ask for Terry to create a statement much like he's done before uh, when we were concerned about immigrants, when we've been concerned about the ACA, I think we need a statement that we can all feel comfortable uh, endorsing and placing on our website in some place. Um, with that, um, I will go ahead and uh, get to the pledge. And uh, this was the original one that uh, I had brought to you all before. It was just a really simple draft uh, statement. And we have the luxury of having an incredible group of individuals inside uh, the committee. And many have thought about this statement and they've created additional versions. I want to present to you the latest iteration. Uh, this is not yet approved or, or endorsed by the members of all of the uh, committee, but I thought it would be wise to share it with you before we get too much further. And I want to read this out loud to just see how this resonates for you all. Alameda Health System is committed to serve diverse communities of Alameda County with the highest quality of care for all. We acknowledge that systemic and structural racism are constant threats to the well-being and in some cases the very survival of patients, staff, and communities of color. We further acknowledge that structural racism has impacted many of our providers and staff. In order to successfully serve all, we must focus targeted efforts on those communities that have suffered the longest and deepest wounds from systemic racism. Alameda Health System pledges to eliminate bias and racism of all forms and build a truly inclusive culture that respects and values diversity in all forms. We will accomplish health equity through the leadership of our diverse providers, staff, and community partners with a focused commitment to 
recognize and address the greatest health disparities that have, de that have had a devastating impact on African Americans, serve the needs of first generation and immigrant Latinx who, who continue to have the least access to healthcare, protect the safety of limited English proficient patients and guide them in navigating to the right care, and fourth, connect the homeless with coordinated care in partnership with key support services. So um, just want to share that this was meant to be a pledge or a mission statement, if you will. I like the idea of it being a pledge instead of a mission statement, but um, wonder if you have any feedback or concerns about the statement. Uh, I, I have a couple thoughts. One, uh, number four, I would recommend a friendly amendment in a language. Uh, the homeless is a terminology that uh, advocates of homeless people try to avoid. An alternative would be unhoused people. Okay. Um, and then my other question is, is there been a consideration of um, uh, equity issues related to the gay lesbian uh, community? Uh, I can never say all the acronym, but uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Trustee. Thank you for bringing that one up. Okay. So it seems like this might be a list that would grow over time and, and you know, maybe it's too early to start perfecting it. But that one seems to be because there are a lot of health overlap uh, with that community. So I can take that back and see if we can add to that. Um, the idea here was to think about the population that we serve here in Alameda County. Um, I hope everyone agrees that African-Americans have certainly been uh, greatly impacted. Um, Latinos are always... Um, we're in the border here of just trying to find healthcare if we're not, um, if our status is in question, but we also face language issues. Um, and then of course, I think about 129 different languages are spoken in Alameda County. I know our uh, interpreter services are really uh, incredible, but even so, uh, limited English proficient patients are sub, uh, more sub, uh, uh, pr uh, at risk for medical errors. So these are some of the things that went into this list. Yeah. So this will come back to the full, um, um, for, for the full heady committee next, right? Yes. So we can finesse yes. it in that. Yes. And so I'm taking your feedback and I will certainly uh, bring up the issue of LGBTQ. So I won't try to craft that right here with you, but right. um, I will definitely bring that back. And I, I don't know, just off the top of my head, uh, Trustee Hernandez, maybe just uh, sort of an open-ended uh, sentence, including other marginalized, you know, I mean, it just, unfortunately, we do such a good job of oppressing people in this country. There's just all sorts of populations everywhere. Uh, I think it's great. The, the ones you're naming with the added that I, I suggested is is worthy of because of the volume of oppression there. But I think, you know, there are other subgroups that, you know, this probably could go on for miles. So maybe a generalized, and then as this, you know, as, as we move forward, it could be alliterative and, and we could add more specific uh, populations in future. That would be my thought. Yeah, yeah. And I think we can, uh, thank you for th that feedback, that we can add some of the other elements 
in them too, like we can pull it out from um, um, some of the other diversity statements we have of others, but uh, really raising, um, I, I would also add indigenous um, because we have a lot of uh, urban indigenous among us, uh, populations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's true. And some of this will also come from the data, right? As we learn more where those inequities are, I think we can be very much fine-tuned about this too. Mm -hmm. Good work. Any other comments, feedback? Yeah, I wanted to just comment. I you know went through the, the slide deck and thought it was just so impressive the work that's been done so far. I would support a motion to get to get this pledge passed tonight, um, and 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 the other motion to um, have uh, have Terry develop a statement from us in support of BLM for for our website. I, I think we should move more quickly and less deliberatively. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess. Um... <laughs> I guess I'm curious on the on that note about process because it's a unique committee, I think, in that we have trustees and staff and, and physicians. And so, um, you know, wanting to be sensitive to the fact that particularly as you're doing equity work, we don't want to be top down. And so I guess I just want to ask about sort of process. Is it is it consensus of of uh, a part of the committee? I think there was like a, it wasn't a steering committee, but like a you know, or how, how is that working? Yeah, so I do want to explain that the chairs of each of the task force that you saw were the ones that I think spent a lot of time looking at editing this, and I gave them some suggestions as well. Uh, so I think that from here, taking the suggestions of the trustees, some modifications may occur, and then the rest of the committee needs to weigh in. One concern, of course, is that uh, wordsmithing among 30 people is always really tough. And I think that uh, my one suggestion is that the trustees really need to have um, the ability to look at this and feel comfortable that it has addressed the broad community that we serve, that we're comfortable with endorsing this, that we're comfortable that this will go on our website and, and um, they, they certainly elevated the statement to a much higher level in their work. Um, I did challenge a little bit and pushed a little bit to try and list out these specific populations uh, because I think we need to be very clear. Uh, we're a very, very diverse uh, region of the country and there's a lot going on and there is a lot of health inequities that we can attribute to any one of these populations. So, um, and, and thank you, uh, Trustee Shaquin, for bringing up LGBTQ. The, the, the issue is, um, are we going to be able to endorse this as trustees and make sure this really is inclusive and um, very bold about what we're trying to do? Uh, if you look at other systems, uh, health equity pledge, either they have simply adopted the um, American Hospital Association pledge or they've come up with something very small and succinct about, you know, being against health disparities. This is very dramatic and very bold and very specific about how much we recognize that structural racism has been a factor 
that has hurt and killed people, that we identify those populations that are part of the county, and that we serve. We actually serve this population. I guess on that note, Trustee Hernandez, I would love to see number one be a little bolder because it sounds a little passive about, you know, that disparities having a devastating impact when actually our healthcare system has a long legacy of abuse, exploitation, neglect, and I could go on towards African-Americans specifically, and is the reason for such persistent mistrust, which is very acute in the African-American population more than a lot of others. So I would love it if one spoke in a little more targeted way because we are a hospital to that legacy and that we're working to kind of overcome that. Okay. Um, Are you talking specifically about that legacy of abuse and targeted um, uh, discrimination? I think it would be so. You know, the length, the the wording. I think um, could be wordsmith, but I but I think the way it reads now is that disparities are having a devastating impact, as opposed to healthcare has has created oh, I see what you're the conditions for the for the disparities, the persistent disparities. Okay. I, I I'm hoping I can speak as um, one of the new chief of staff. Uh, committee and the last surviving on the meeting, apparently, at the moment. Um, uh, I appreciate this effort and um, I appreciate the shout out from uh, Del Vecchio about our focus in the OBGYN department. I, and it's, you know, obviously, for many reasons, a personal passion um, to address equity. When I read this, um, I know you, you, you put structural racism in there. I don't, I don't feel it. I don't see it. It, it just kind of gets lost in um, uh, the body of this for me, um, and that may just be a personal thing. If it's, I think you might do uh, better just to have a few lines like, "We are fighting structural racism." Boom, and then the next thing is, "How." Um, is it, uh, okay, so we're going to recognize this, we're going to serve that, we're going to do this, how? I think there's one more step to this to really be um, dramatic um, and I think rise to the level of the current challenge around this. And ultimately, um, and I don't know all those answers. I, I, I hate people who throw out ideas and then don't have an idea. for. I, I get that, but... But I do think there's a another level of this. So we are going to do this by boom. I mean, we yeah. there's a line here that says we are going to eliminate bias and racism of all forms. We pledge to. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. How? And um, let's let's take let's go to that next thought. I don't want it to feel so sloganized, and I don't mean to be disrespectful. I know that it took a long time to get to where you are. But I want, we recognize and we are um, working to mitigate the effects of structural racism on healthcare. Like, bam. These are the things we're planning to do to do that. These are the way, and then at some point, these are the ways we, we, we honor the pledge. This is how we're going to show you we're honoring the pledge. And maybe that's not exactly where we are at the level of this um, uh, process, but 
I just don't want it to feel like a slogan or watered down or the right thing to do or um, a box for checking right now. Let's, what are we doing? What's? Yeah, thank you. And, and I think the hard part is that um, this is meant to uh, provide um, a vision, an inspiration about the hard work ahead and there are a lot of tasks that this committee has indeed identified that they will do as priorities for this very first year. So it's hard to not put all of that operational piece into just a few you know, sentences and uh, we'll look at how we could do that. Uh, but please do understand, yes, we know there's a lot to be said about how we're gonna get this done. What are the steps we're going to take? What are those programs that we're going to see if we can launch? What are those actions that we're going to take to um, inform and educate all of us around unconscious bias and so on and so on? There's plenty uh, of action steps that need to be taken. Um, so I guess my um, question is if you could capsulize this in one uh, mission state, one sentence, that's what, what needs to pop out. And it doesn't exactly pop out for me. Okay. All right. We'll work on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any other comments before I move on? Okay. I will take the feedback back and hopefully have another version. Uh, at some point, we'll have to rest with what we have and make the decision to go forward. And I appreciate everyone's patience with this. Thank you. I'm sorry. I, I do have one more comment, Maria. Uh, so can we, in fact, move forward on the BLM thing right now? Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that would be great. I, 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 I just, I just want to, again, say how like amazing it is you put this group not you the, the group has come together and it's it's huge and it's beautiful and um thank you yeah it's amazing how much they've worked um at one of our sessions i'll show you the dashboard and you're going to see amazing amount of effort by everyone in this group to get so much done and the amount of time that they've had so there is much to be grateful for and thankful for for every single person that's been putting a lot of energy into this um, Delvecchio, do you need simply a request from us right now that Terry take on uh, this activity of creating the statement? Would that be enough or do we need an actual motion? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think you can actually uh, take an action uh, um, uh, that wasn't uh, calendared. I, 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 I thought we needed to just bring it up in this context. I don't think the spirit of the request uh, not seeing any objections uh, that we will work on it and we'll bring it as an agenda item for future meetings. Is that I okay? We already had so. <laughs> well, we sort of counted. Uh, <laughs> we we counted my statement as the organization statement, but I, I think uh, what we're hearing is that you right now, the board wants to make an organizational statement and we can we can formalize it in that way. Right. No problem. I just want to uh, remind us that when that happened, I think uh, we did a draft that was shared just like with a couple of us like thought about writing a statement on behalf of the board and it was circulated so there's there was a draft there that I can share with Terry but just around the time that we were finalizing our draft 
you sent the statement, Dalakya. So we kind of held back at that time. But there, okay. is, there is a draft there that I can share with. Oh, yeah. If you'll send that to both of us, actually, that would be very much appreciated. Will do. Thank you. Thank you. And Joe, does that make you feel good? <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks. Great. Thank you. That was great. All right, Del Vecchio on the 2021 budget status. Oh, actually, it's uh, not or really. Kim. It's, uh, okay, Kim. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's uh, pretty succinct, uh, Kim. Is that is that right? You can. The floor is yours. Are you? Oh, there you go. Okay. See my screen or no? Yep, we can see yep. it. All right. going and you can still see it yes all right so i'm giving an update on where we are on the fy21 budget as you likely all recall we approved an interim budget last month and we were just about at a break-even ebitda that's what i'm showing on the screen here we were at about 1.2 million we originally set out this budget process to achieve a level of performance consistent with calendar year 2019. And we were uh, off our target by about 32 million of EBITDA. Since that time, uh, we've been working, the Budget Oversight Committee is uh, uh, meeting just about weekly and there's a lot of subgroups within the organization that are uh, coming, up for, coming up with improvements. Uh, so I am happy to report we've got uh, some as of today. We uh, have made an improvement of 13.8 million. Um, it's coming from a buyout of our legacy um, applications of 1.8 million. We did receive or we expect to receive some care fund money of about 5 million. And then we've done some um, fine tuning to our benefits, which resulted in a 6.9 million improvement so now our final or i shouldn't say final we're still working on it we plan to come back in october with a final budget for you to approve but we're sitting now at a uh, 15 million 1.4 percent ebitda margin and i've got that on the next slide here so um our ebitda has now improved 15 million but we're still 18.4 million off of our original target, um, but we're just uh, trying to do everything we can to um, generate cash flow to help pay for our capital and our commitments um, outlined in our cash flow statement, which it looks like we did not include. Sorry about that. Um, but we we want to the break even got us to a point where we weren't adding to our deficit, but we really wanted to generate cash flow to help pay for all of our essential capital needs, which are great this year. Um, this is just to give you an idea of all the things that we're working on. So you can see opportunities identified. You can see how much we put in our interim budget that was approved. And then there's the uh, 13.8 million in the to be included in the final budget, but there's still a lot of other items on this list that we are still working. Um, I'm really pleased with the engagement of everyone in the organization and the fact that 
people aren't just uh, throwing out numbers. They're actually coming up with detailed, actionable plans to make sure that we achieve the um, improvements that we've included. And uh, this is just a summary slide here. Um, our plan is still to have an update on the high-risk variables. Um, we're doing the ongoing analysis that I just spoke about to optimize and improve our financial performance. We are planning to come back with a final budget for your approval in October. And uh, I also want to comment that WIPLEASE Phase 2 is underway. They're here uh, working with us now. And the focus is on uh, financial reporting and the next steps to stabilize AHS. Any questions or comments? I would just add, Kim, that the a reminder that the capital amount that we're trying to uh, raise, I believe it's 63 million, is that the? You are correct. So that's uh, a lot of dinero. Yes, it's a it's a bigger number than we generally um, require, but the essential capital for this year alone is um, $43 million. And then we have commitments uh, for projects that are currently underway and for EPIC, and that gets us to that 63 number. And, and my recollection uh, was that uh, there, were, there were items that were, uh, it was hard to find items that were uh, frivolous on that. And there's nothing frivolous on there. They're all very essential capital. If we don't do them, there are consequences. Um, so, um, we still have an incredible mountain to climb, right? Yes, we do. We really, we really do. There's, uh, uh, we definitely have, uh, a substantial way to go. Um, the, uh, we did receive our first, I think the Vecchio, uh, started us off with this comment about the fact that we got our FY09 settlement, which is a net of 7 million. But the total we expect to be um, due by the end of the year is close to 100 million, and obviously we don't have the, that kind of cash flow to pay those recoupments. I know we've been talking about it again and again and again, but it's happening. We got that first one. We also, um, on our CAPH call yesterday morning, asked them uh, uh, based off of their work with the state, uh, how likely was it that. Um, the, or actually that was this morning, geez, Tom. Um, um, how likely was it that the state would finish all the years by the end of the uh, calendar year? And at this point, their suspicion is that, or speculation is that uh, they are uh, going to be able to do it. They expected a lot of them to uh, uh, come uh, culminate around November and December. So we'll keep tracking that, but right now they're still suggesting that the likelihood is still great that this will, this will still, uh, uh, continue to or or be done by the end of the calendar year. Now, Becky, are, are, are they pushing it because some of the providers they owe money to or it's just the state one? I think it's that, but I, I my recollection and Tangerine could uh, speak to this is uh, uh, that one of the requirements of the current uh, uh, the Medicare uh, waiver was that this stuff uh, had to be done by uh, this, time, this year. It started later uh, and there was a long delay to start the process but we, as you recall we expected some of this to be come due in the last year, but it all has now been pushed for this fiscal year yeah that's correct um everything needs to be done 
uh, by the end of this calendar year. Hmm. And uh, Kim, I have another question. If we were to hit our, if we were to hit our cap, fund our total capital needs, what what would the bottom line number need to be? Well, we're limited um, by what we can actually achieve in a year. Yeah. But the essential items that our leadership team has come up with is $43 million for FY21. There's more stuff that needs to be done. We just can't get it all done in one year. If you look going out the next three years, we have a substantial capital need. I don't have the slide here, but it's in the deck. It's in the, it's in our, I've presented it a few times. Okay. Yeah. But, but I, I just, to, to, the, to fund the 43 million, what, what would our EBITDA have to be? So, 43 million? So right now we, we, we show that we'll be about 200 million over on June 30th. If we can improve by another, by the full 30 million to get us to the 2019, we'd still need the 170 million. Okay. Real money. It's real money. It is real money. Thank you. I know trustees, some trustees are meeting with uh, Board of Supervisors. Uh, is is there another meeting scheduled, though, for the group of us that we're meeting with uh, the Auditor Controller and the Chief Administrator? So um, I met with uh, Melissa Wilk, and I also met with Rebecca and Melissa Wilk. So we had two meetings this last month. Uh, Melissa's committed to meeting with me every three weeks. And at the last meeting uh, where she and I talked, she was trying to set up another meeting with the bigger group, the same group that met before uh, mm -hmm. with the supervisors the first week of September. I haven't seen it come on the calendar yet, but I, I'm sure it's not an easy thing to schedule. I feel like I saw something. I was trying to see if I could quickly pull it up, or maybe it was just an email. Uh, suggesting tentative dates, but so so is it is it the case that they that the county has not uh, committed to increase the net negative balance? Yeah, yeah they haven't committed uh, to anything except for to continue to meet and talk about it, um, which you know I think obviously we need to do um, uh, the it's not as I understand it. Uh, the two people that I'm meeting with, the auditor controlling Melissa Wilk and also uh, Rebecca Gephardt, it, they say it's above what they can do. So um, they can, you know, surely provide information up the chain, but it's not something that they can actually act on. Well, it's obviously something we've got to get resolved because, you know, the, if we have to make really major cuts, the longer we wait to do it, the more disastrous it'll be. Right. And actually, it's literally an issue of cash flow. Um, and uh, if there isn't a commitment to uh, increase the net negative balance, then we could be in a situation where we're not sure if we can pay vendors. Or make a payroll. That's, that's how this works. I just want to explain it. <laughs> and, and, and so it puts, uh, puts the system in a very precarious place. Sorry, Kim? And even payroll. I mean, if we, if we, the, the total amount we believe we owe is 137 million this year. 
100 million of it coming up by December. I mean, there, this is all from, you know, 2009, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. So, you know, we don't, we just make enough to pay for our current operations and, and contribute something to capital. But we, I mean, the idea that we could, you know, make these payments from all those years ago is not, it's, it, it's just, it's just impossible. So there has to be another solution. And 70 plus percent of our operational budget is labor. Yes, almost 70 percent. It's about 68.9 uh, right now at the end of the year. Okay. I think we need to have some frank conversations. Yeah. And I think I think timing is everything. On this. The longer we wait, the more drastic the, the options are going to be. You know, guys, we're, we're already, we, we, I mean, we've had the frank conversation. <laughs> like, if this feels like Groundhog Day. Yeah, it does. So, whatever. Sorry, I don't mean to sound flip, but, we, you know, this is where we are. When's our next joint meeting? <laughs> I think you have one scheduled. We don't have one scheduled. Yeah, they said they would, so... Uh... Uh, he's, he's referring to a different meeting. Oh, a different, sorry. Oh, the joint meeting, yeah. You mean of both boards, Joe? Correct, yes, yes, exactly. And that's the bigger group that I was referring to that they were trying to set up. No, 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 it's still different. You were talking about a bigger sort of mixed group. He's talking about uh, the totality of the two boards. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah Joe, do we really want one of those meetings? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, whatever. Look, we've look. This this information is all very public. We've 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 done the Whipley thing. We haven't even had the meeting with them about with the board about Whipley about about phase one. Have we? Am I forgetting something? No, that was going to be the March meeting, and it became COVID. And there was a brief discussion. <laughs> and we but we also haven't received the county's audit, right? Uh, no, we haven't heard anything else about that audit. So we have some things to follow up on. <laughs> so to Trustee Shaquin's question, do we want to, we want to have that meeting or is that maybe not the most expeditious way to do this? I mean. Well, I, I would hope that, you know, we could have some more discussion with the auditor controller and in that smaller meeting we had and see if, uh, you know, we can work with them and the board members to come up with a solution before we go to that larger forum, which I, which I found the few that I've gone, I found them pretty futile. Is that <laughs> yeah. Those are like my favorite meetings of the year. <laughs> <laughs> well, you come up with very colorful language, Joe. Apparently, I got subpoenaed for it. <clears throat> anyway, let's just keep on going. <laughs> I'd better just shut my mouth it's now. It's not even that late, Trustee DeVries. <laughs> I usually don't get like this until 10 or 11. <laughs> well, I mean, this is a very serious issue. And the longer we wait to, to come up with a solution, the more difficult it is to come up with viable solutions. And well, I think it is really helpful to hear that we're going to have to pay these clawbacks or 100 million of them by December. That's that's news that is that's a newer development. We didn't really know that. And I think that is 
um, th that should trigger more of a conversation for sure. And I think we we have been saying that all along. I mean, it's yeah. saying by the end of the calendar year, by the end of the calendar year, by the end of the calendar year, ever since the day I walked in the door. Okay. Yeah. Good point. And in addition to those paybacks, we really need to fund this cap these capital outlay. I mean, right. we're, these are essential. These are essential items. Other discussion or questions for Kim? All right, thank you. I think that takes us to the grand jury update from Mike Moy. Yes, Trustee Avila, and I just you know wanted to report that I am working pace on it. I did get a little bit waylaid by another matter that we'll be discussing in closed session, but I think we're still on track uh, for the timeline. I propose that the next meeting there will be something for the trustees to review, uh, perhaps modify or approve. All right. So I think we're still with you to do the announcement as to the closed session. Uh, I have yes. a quick question. Oh. Mike, Mike when, when is the report due? When is our response due? Uh, it is due the, uh, the first week of October. Okay, thank you. Ah, so hearing uh, no others, uh, the uh, board will meet in closed session. Uh, items as set forth in the agenda regarding uh, uh, pending litigation, uh, a couple of matters of anticipated lit litigation, and a performance evaluation. Officer.